headliner takes over the rostrum at the National Press Club in Washington. The men who cover the Capitol scene are regaled by Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense, who has some comments about his latest picture. For over 30 years now, I have been indulging in the occupation of raising goose flesh domestically and in England. I have only recently completed work on the latest picture. The title is quite short just two words. There were three, but we cut the first word for. <laughs> and call it simply the birds. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I'm your host, Zach Eastman. Um, we're into episode two of the second half of the Shamley Silhouette series. Uh, uh, I want to thank everybody for the patience they've had in the break that we took to uh, get some more episodes down the pipeline, but also to figure out a way to wrap up this series. And uh, we've got some great ideas coming through, and I think by... Uh, I want to say the end of June we should have a wrap-up, uh, unless I decide to go a little further. You know, Al Alfred Hitchcock made a lot of movies, uh, one of which we can't talk about because it's fucking lost. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if you if you know where the Mountain Eagle is, contact the British Film Institute, who will then contact me via secret, uh, you know, radio ring, like in the shadow. And it will be an, an amazing experience for all of us all around. Um, and I want to thank la last episode's guest, Marshall Rosales, for coming down to talk for three hours on three different Hitchcock misses, uh, Jamaica Inn, um, uh, Torn Curtain, and Topaz. Uh, it was a very interesting discussion and uh, made me realize that me and Leonard Malton are still the only ones who like Topaz. Um, so, you know, whatever. We can have our own little club, you know. I'm sure Leonard Malton and I can get together, have some popcorn, and watch Topaz together and appreciate it for, for how much it is doing. Um, but we're going to move along, uh, as we normally do, and this time we're going to actually talk about a major success in Hitchcock's career. Um, undeniably, uh, Psycho is the peak of his powers when it comes to the golden age of Hitchcock, as well as just Hitchcock's career in general. Nothing gets higher than Psycho. How do you top that? Do you do another spy film with Cary Grant or another uh, film with Jimmy Stewart about a more average man who gets tangled up into a situation? Uh, do you do, uh, you know, any kind of number of things that Hitchcock could be doing? And instead, he chooses to make a monster movie um, uh, to the respect of uh, the idea of nature turning on man, uh, taken from a short story by Daphne du Maurier, who provided two different stories for Hitchcock in the past. This time it's from a short story called the birds and hitchcock takes this uh changes the setting from cornwall to bodega bay and creates undeniably film history um with that come positives and negatives now here to discuss the film with me as a guy that i've been wanting to get on the show for a while um because he does a wonderful show uh with his co-host cody 
uh, called Punk Rock Horror Podcast, where amongst the milieu of horror that they discuss, they also promote punk rock bands. They have two other sideshows, one of which uh, Paranormal Princess does that I've listened to. Um, if you haven't listened to it, uh, check it out. Their recent episode, as of this recording, discusses two different Ted Bundy movies. And you got to give it up for these guys willing to talk about the subjects that just make you want to set yourself on fire <laughs> because it, they're just so depressing. But, you know, and, and on top of that, uh, he is an, uh, he is an accomplished horror aficionado and, uh, I couldn't think of a better person to come in and talk about Hitchcock's only monster movie than Matthew McCord, AKA undead Matt. Thank you, man. Thanks for coming, uh, having me come on. Thank you for coming down. I appreciate it. You Cody sends his love, by the oh, way. He thank says he's you. sorry you can't make it. Oh, so. Virtual hug to Cody <laughs> and on the other end. I, I got to tell you, um, now we met um, primarily. I, I listened to your show prior, um, but the way we met in person for the first time yeah. was I won a contest, yeah, <laughs> which I've man. never won before. Uh, talk about like small world, yeah, kind of stuff. Exactly, <laughs> and it's uh, but it was the uh, it, you, we went to a screening of it, Chapter Two, and IMAX, yeah. which. Uh, I mean, in the, I, I dug the movie. I really enjoyed it. And but just talking with you afterwards and different – your knowledge base is massive when it comes to Thank this you. genre. Um, I'm glad to know it didn't go completely to waste. Oh, no, not <laughs> at all. Um, and actually, um, I remember um, my, one of my favorite episodes that you've done within the last year – was talking about um, the Michael Henneke funny games, um, oh, which really? which I I appreciated because you're talking about a, a director who remakes his own work, um, yeah. which is a very uh, touchy area to um, adapt. And oddly enough, Hitchcock did the same thing with yeah. the man who knew too I much. Mean, so. You know, man, when it comes to like remakes, you know, it's <laughs> you, you can't really argue it's a bad remake if it's the same guy remaking it. Yeah, you know? it's like... very hard to to push that. But I mean. <laughs> I've always been of the opinion that like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a more heightened remake of the first one to a certain degree. Yeah. Obviously the plot's different but like the 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 aesthetics and the the intent is the same as the first one but then right. it just amps it up to the level of 80s nonsense. Yeah. Um and it's also a wonderful film and Dennis Hopper wields two chainsaws like a crazy person. So I I love it. Yeah. Um but um but I I brought you on for uh this Shamley episode primarily because um you know, Hitchcock has a lot of cred in the horror world, but in the realistic sense, uh, if we're talking about traditional horror tropes, he only makes really uh, three, which would be Psycho, The Birds, and Frenzy. Yeah. Um, and this one in particular, I think, is the most horror-laden if people want to divide the subject up. I mean, I could argue that Shadow of a Doubt is a horror movie because it's about a killer, you know, yeah. stalking people throughout this small town. Um but I mean, if the you know the if the question is what cons, you know considers to be a horror movie, um, it always comes down to a few key factors. I mean, you know, it, it, horror can sometimes be confused for like crime or thrillers, mm -hmm. and so when we're looking at the horror, we're looking at we're looking at horror, we're looking at things that type in that go into more of a morbid area. Yeah. So I mean, um, uh, you know, a good example of that would be like Pet Cemetery. Yeah. And the reason I bring that one up is because the whole thing behind it is you know pets coming back from the grave you know the undead stuff like that mm -hmm. it's already jumping into this really dark territory of life coming back even mm -hmm. though life has already been depleted yeah whereas you know if you looked at that and made it a movie about a kid dealing with the grief that he <laughs> lost his pet then now you have a drama yeah because he's dealing with grief and now you you took away you know the undead part of that yeah and so and and maybe that's a little bit of a rough example but you know horror isn't everything and that's why we i mean that's why we even started the punk rock horror podcast 
was because we firmly believe that horror is given the tail end of respect. Um, Undeservedly so. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, we're talking about Alfred Hitchcock, and he's one of probably the biggest names in the film industry. He's, you know, a huge film study. Mm -hmm. um, And even only having to make a few movies that have horror in them, and even some that aren't even directly centered around horror, like, obviously those movies are talked about. Everybody knows what Psycho is. Yeah. You know, everybody knows those scenes. Everybody knows the shower scene. Mm -hmm. Um you know, and and you, when you think about it, it's like you, I always bring up Die Hard, like as my go-to example. <laughs> That's I don't a good know one. why, but like you know, everybody thinks of like you know Bruce Willis, you know, jumping out of this building and like crashing in. That's a huge scene. Everybody's going to think about that. And then when you think of something more simplistic, you know, like that scene in Psycho where she's getting killed in the shower. It's a very simple scene. Like even that, uh, it, it's not even blood going down the drain. If I remember right, I think it is like a mixture of like chocolate syrup and something else yeah I, I forget what it is but it's a really simple scene to shoot um and yet it's lasted like decades upon decades upon decades and so um i think we know when we talk about horror when we talk about horror movies we really need to be really careful of to remember what that is so as long as it's going into talking about a certain grief or a dark you know part of a tale mm -hmm. that's what we're looking at with horror that that's what it is i mean even Disney has horror in, in its oh, creations, yeah. whether it's something as traumatic as the Black Cauldron to something as more simple as like an obvious as Halloween Town. Yeah. Like that whole thing is like horror for kids. Yeah. I mean, that one, the uh, without going too far off, the one scene in that movie is uh, the taxi driver when he's just all pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> like, because like the whole town's got that bad juju going around them. I forget yeah. what happened. Like, I know it's like some sort of curse. Right. But he's just like all angry. Like, that. That scared the living shit out of me when it happened because he's just an angry skeleton. So and I was just like, Ugh. it it jumps you back and like and Disney uh, is not a, um, a an unfair figure to construe with in horror. Yeah. Like even as far back as the first animated feature he did, Snow White, the sequence where she's through the forest and yeah. the trees are grabbing at her. That's a horror sequence yeah. for children. I mean, and even you know, if we're, I mean, Evil Dead like, had. <laughs> I mean, it had trees who, you know, and I guess you could argue a tasteful manner, you know, kind of like raped a woman. Yeah. And like, I mean, whatever about that, man. Like Sam <laughs> Raimi, that dude's wild. Like yeah. I have massive respect for that guy. Yeah. Like, no, he's he's willing to push a boundary that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. And it's uh, it's interesting because he I think that he's one of the last forebearers of slapstick. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh to to a, just in the way the Coen brothers are like the last bastion of screwball comedy. Yeah. Like S Sam Raimi understands slapstick like nobody's business. Like Ar Army of Darkness is one of the oh, best God, slapstick yeah. movies ever I mean, made. My, I mean, I've talked about it before on the podcast. My favorite scene from Army of Darkness, like one of my favorite jokes, is when the whole Army of the Dead is finally attacking the castle, and you just see the one soldier playing the femur bone. Yeah. Just like a little <laughs> battle flute. Like it's it's so random. It's such a stupid scene. But it works. It <laughs> absolutely yeah, works. I mean, after you know the whole scene where ash fights himself like i'm just like yeah whatever at this point yeah so going into it before we dive into the birds um uh what what uh as a as a horror fan and a horror aficionado um i guess 
uh, if I were to assume like the Hitchcock enters your life through one of those three films, yeah. but I won't assume. So how do you get into somebody like Alfred Hitchcock? So for me, man, um, so I've talked about before on the podcast, like I have ADHD, anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, manic depression, uh, PTSD, you know, the whole smattering of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was a kid, you know, my, my anxiety made my, and especially my ADHD was mm-hmm. at its peak, you know, mm-hmm. it was, so because of that, it was really hard for me to go to sleep at night um and then even to wake up you know at a decent time mm. i either wake up way too late or way too early and so you know the days that i wake up way too early before school i'd be up probably about like five or six a.m yeah you know school doesn't start till about seven or eight and so sci-fi at the time would just play like old classics so like they'd play old twilight zone and also old hitchcock stuff mm-hmm. and so you know because nothing else was on at the time um keep in mind like this was back in like the 90s you know so like it's not like we had like netflix at the time you know whatever was on tv was ever on the tv yeah you just um, accepted it and yeah like it. cartoon network <laughs> you know adult swim really wasn't as what it is now mm-hmm. and so they would mainly play like you know infomercials and shit so sci-fi was like the only channel that we had um that was playing something like throughout you know 24 7 loop right and so i would just you know watch these shows and wait for my mom to wake up to take me to school and i just would keep watching hitchcock and i keep watching twilight zone and that's where i got my like first interest into it so was it the Alfred hitchcock present show or was it yeah it was the Alfred hitchcock okay right on yeah yeah and it's then that's a subject that we haven't truly probed on the show other than the humorous monologues at the beginning or the intros and stuff but that that anthology is very influential in the way the twilight zone is i'd I'd say different but similar realms like they oh, all yeah. kind of it, it was it was definitely like that was like definitely in the era of like the night i mean obviously they're made in different times but it, like those two were being played at the same time as like <laughs> you know even like well sylvester stallone was the exact opposite of jean-claude Van Damme. There, was, <laughs> there was always something that was the exact opposite of something else like yeah pepsi and coke whatever yeah um you know it, that was that's what it was man like it was it was you're either in both camps i either or one i was in both i loved both of them i love twilight zone a little bit more for specific you know elements and i also loved uh hitchcock's stuff for more narrative elements mm-hmm. and so like there's pros and cons of both if you compare them but uh, yeah that's that's where i got my intro to hitchcock yeah and then obviously that blossoms naturally into um the milieu of hitchcock like yeah. um and in, and specifically with psycho uh the birds and even frenzy which i mean frenzy i think is a film that you have to work up to yeah um because it's much more uh, i mean even to this day it's still a very effective and terrifying film on its own merits because well, i mean like i think what's hard about hitchcock's films sometimes mm-hmm. is that i think people go in expecting to be terrified mm-hmm. because when he came out with his movies you know like things like psycho and the birds weren't seen you know you didn't see people getting stabbed you didn't see creature features at that extent i mean we had creature features like you know giant obscure ants or salamander lizards just yeah like the attacking atom- the atomic age yeah, yeah like, there was that stuff but you didn't see anything where it was like normal birds mm-hmm. attacking people and in hitchcock what made him brilliant at the time mm-hmm. is that he was touching on fears that people didn't know they had yeah um you know because it's like in the bird specifically um, it, I would argue that it touches on the whole aspect of, you know, man is the top of the food chain, mm-hmm. but what if the food chain decides to finally 
strike back. The, the thing you take for granted turn yeah. turn on you. Yeah. And that's a big th- it's a big through line in the bird specifically. Like I mean and if you kind of like on a more humorous side if you think <laughs> about it like you know you see all those videos of like someone getting chased by a goose. So it's <laughs> I mean to say that the fear isn't there would be incorrect because obviously it is. It's funny that you bring that up because one of the impetuses for the birds coming into existence as a motion picture stems from two factors both of which you've brought up and i I love the transition it's awesome um (laughs) the uh um so the birds um the original short story by daphne du maurier uh takes place in cornwall and it's more and it's uh according to um uh the uh production designer on the birds it was much more of a um a mood piece in his opinion um it's not really a um uh you know, a straight through narrative. Yeah. So I, I always thought that I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, you're all good. <laughs> um, I, I, I always thought that Alfred Hitchcock aimed for more of a, um, an art house type of style for his films mm-hmm. more than he leads on. I mean, I, I, I will argue that. I mean, it's not like he's going to come back from the grave and argue with me. If he did, then I think I would give it to Matt, him. Matt, you're full point. of shit. I know, right? <laughs> like, just like his ghost sits in here. I'd probably like, Oh, he's come out. He's come on the show more than okay, once okay. to to curse and swear. Jimmy Stewart does that too. And I will have you go. <laughs> match, 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 match. You don't know what you're fucking talking about. <laughs> Alma, Alma, give me my book. I I'm gonna. Will, I'm gonna... <laughs> I, I will tape a bird to your forehead. <laughs> I did it to Tippy. I'll do it to you. Oh God. Oh, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Robert Boyle, um, the production designer of the birds, he brings in like he 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 extracts it as a mood piece and kind of starts designing some stuff. Yeah. But the premise is initially bought for an Alfred Hitchcock presents episode. Yeah. That was the original intent. And then um, w- within the span of development, obviously he makes North by Northwest and psycho and he's looking for his next project. And there were actual attacks by birds in the early sixties. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the bigger ones in particular, it took place in Capitola, California in August of 61. And a group of birds seemed to attack the entire community. Uh, the quote I have on through here is hordes of seabirds were dive bombing their homes, crashing into cars and spewing half digested anchovies onto lawns, yep. <laughs> which all sounds hilarious in retrospect 50 years down the line. Right. Um, but um, and supposedly the cause was toxic algae that the birds have eaten and kind of drove them crazy and yeah. whatnot. And there's a scattered other bird attacks that kind of influence the, the, the mind of Hitchcock to be like, this would make a good story. Um, so he hires Evan Hunter to write the script and, um, he basically tells Evan Hunter, like, we're pretty much eliminating everything from Daphne du Maurier's story, except the title and the fact that birds are attacking people. So no more, uh, setting it in Cornwall, no more mood piece. It's gotta be a straightforward narrative. So Evan Hunter develops a story, uh, that is, uh, decidedly American, um, in its approach and also, stretches out and adds elements that thematically divide the film between both a horror movie and a love story. Yeah. Um, but meld the two together to create this very poignant allegory um, while at the same time uh, operating the way a monster movie should. And yeah. it's, 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 it's inherent to point out amongst other things that this movie's two hours long Yeah, at a time when a monster movie would run the gamut of anywhere from 70 to 90 minutes mm-hmm, at tops. Mm-hmm. Uh, mo- more specifically, if you're talking about the universal horrors past, like 
outside of a scattered few, most of the films are running from 70 to 80 minutes. So they, they, yeah. they pack a lot in. Well, and, and you know, man, and when you think about it, it's kind of amazing that it's that long. Cause even like King Kong back then, both iterations, like, um, were just, you, you know, not as long or, you know, as birds in with the grand scale of something like King Kong, you know, yeah. fighting dinosaurs and being in New York. And I mean, everybody knows the tale of King Kong. If you don't know the tale of King Kong, yes, I, don't know yeah, to tell you. I know one particular director, I, I won't tell you his name, but uh. he, he knows how to take 90 minutes and stretch it out into three and still make it great. <laughs> <laughs> I love that King Kong remake, uh, but yeah. it is very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I love it too, man. Um, I, I mean, we could talk about King Kong too if you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, I, I've, I'm, I'm debating doing Jack as a subject cause, I, uh, I peter ja- i mean that's another again coming back to how horror i mean i don't know if the listeners heard it or are going to hear it but we talked about um how horrors and everything yeah um and so like again like peter jackson got to start out with a horror franchise like he made horror movies first yep before he ever made lord of the rings before he made king kong or anything else he made horror movies yep he made two um, different genres um like straight up horror films and puppet fucking movies yeah, <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite uh like behind the, i forget what movie he was on but uh one of the behind the scene film this photos i've seen was with you know peter jackson talking to one of the actors and he's already in makeup and prop where it's like half of his lower yeah half from de- from uh yeah. brain dead dead alive thank you, yeah, thank yeah. You. yeah that's yeah that's i thought it was dead alive i, I just wasn't positive well it's got two different titles too so it's like oh yeah it gets confusing. Uh, uh, and i and i also never have never seen any behind the scene photos like oh. finding that movie for me is just <laughs> such a pain in the ass like mm. oh I, it's the blu-ray's out of print it's it, yeah it's it's one of the hardest movies to find uh. Uh, you know supposedly Rob Zombie owns every horror movie ever made, which, <laughs> you know, I don't know Rob Zombie, but I mean, we I'm, on the show, we've researched <laughs> enough that there's some movies that you can't find. Yeah. So I, I don't know, man. It, 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 maybe I need to go shoot him an email and be like, hey, man, um, I, I'm not asking you to come on the show. Can I just borrow Brain Dead from you? <laughs> <laughs> email, can you mail it to me? I'll mail it back. <laughs> I like the idea that Rob Zombie's got his own version of the Disney Vault, that, right. where he could like he yeah. could feasibly do that whole thing, like you know, like <laughs> be sure to buy Dead Alive before it goes yeah. back into the Zombie Vault. Well, and this is legit too, because like I read this in Fangoria like years ago, um, and it's just like he apparently he owns like every single horror movie ever, Oof. like supposedly he does. Um, you know, maybe he has the mountain eagle. Like, I mean, I know it's not strict; it's not a horror movie, but like, maybe he just has it yeah. because I like, in a bulk of some. Maybe like, he has it. What, but I mean, being Rob Zombie, heck, could you imagine opening a letter from like, oh, hey, this is a fan. Maybe they're asking me for an autograph, and it's just, hey, can I borrow a brain dead? <laughs> You're like, well, I've never had this request before. I don't know if I should be insulted or not. Sh- Sherry, take a look at this. I'm like, do you think this is? a joke <laughs> <laughs> like like uh, I, if he does own every horror movie um he doesn't really show it in his directing yeah and that sounds like a, a, a shade at him it's not uh, it's just more so i've noticed that rob zombie in his most recent films mm-hmm. doesn't really you know go away from his wheelhouse and mm, and i know yeah. like i mean I, I guess you could argue you know someone like martin scorsese doesn't do that either right but Martin Scorsese still brings out a really good tale mm-hmm. throughout his movies. Like it's still something you can, you know, you find yourself getting invested in. Right. I mean, the Irishman is like three and a half hours. And, and the I, Irishman is a reckoning for his entire career. Right. Like, and it's a great movie. Like, check it out. I had to watch it in chunks, but still it's a fantastic film. Fantastic film. Um, but like, you know, Rob Zombie, he, he, 
I always think he keeps trying to go for a shock value. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that because that's a homestead and horror in general. But um, with always trying to go for shock value, eventually people know you're going to try to go for shock value. Right. So when you have, you know, Sherry Moon. And I keep on, I haven't seen the latest film he's done yet. Oh, I Three just, from Hell, yeah. yeah. I just haven't seen it yet. Neither like, have I, when, yeah. When you got Sherry Moon coming on saying like, fuck shit and like you know blasphemous stuff against god or even uh bill mosley which by the way i love bill mosley dude's a fantastic <laughs> <Who> actor <laughs> like he has some great variety like, yeah he's very versatile um you know like he one of his best scenes was in devil's rejects where he's just talking about like i am god there is no god that yeah. whole like speech oh the, i'm the devil and i'm here to do the devil's yeah, work like, yeah i yeah. am the devil and, you know, <laughs> um like that was amazing but now we've experienced that so you know you're not he's not you're not going to throw anything our way that isn't going to surprise us now yeah and it's actually um before we get back to hitchcock i did want to touch on this because it's interesting rob zombie was originally um there was a movie he had in development that i thought would have been it could have potentially been the greatest of his career um was raised eyebrows um he was going to do the groucho marx um story um which raised eyebrows if you've never heard of it um has kind of a hitch could have had a hitchcock vibe to it as well um if he had approached it this way i don't know but it's based on a memoir by steve stolier who lived in groucho's house during the final years and it's it's groucho's sunset boulevard and the main antagonist in the piece is a woman right. named aaron fleming who i would have assumed sherry would have played it and i think she actually would have been good in the role yeah um but that would have been a way for him to deviate and i think that that was a probably a project that couldn't just well, get financed. and he's shown that he's done it before like he yeah. can do it like salem gets a lot of shit oh i love lords of salem um but yeah lords of salem is still like a fantastic like so even though it gets a lot of shit because it's mostly like a slow burn of a movie yeah um i would say like it's one of his better movies that deviates from what he normally does exactly i mean it still has his aesthetic to it but he's definitely going for more of a calm slow burn type of psychological type of feel yeah and he can do that like he's shown he can do that with halloween one and two which i know those movies get shit too but on the you know prhp we love them because cody put it perfectly it shows what would actually happen to someone if they were being you know followed and chased by a serial killer. yeah if the concept of michael myers was a tangible reality because like carpenter's films like i'm a i'm a halloween nut carpenter's film and the subsequent sequels deal much more with michael as a supernatural concept yeah. of evil yeah. a construct like that rob zombie breaks it down like i mean and i have mixed feelings on the on the, the remakes but if i separate them out from like the legacy of halloween they are perfectly well-constructed films right. on their own i think the second one is actually a wonderful film about ptsd oh like and and i get it like the biggest like the biggest criticism against it is because they don't do justice to jamie lee curtis's character from the original films right and, i mean whatever man like it's jamie lee curtis she she started out as a screen queen no one's gonna ever take that torch from no her. no no um no. and to even live up to that is a huge huge expectation and i think scout taylor compton does a good job with those yeah roles. i mean like, she, i she did great uh, i like i don't agree with the criticism but that is just the criticism yeah exactly that is against it yeah no um, and it's a total like i mean and again it's an affectation of or like you know Hitchcock deals with this similarly the way that Rob Zombie does, where it's like one ex- a style is expected, and, and more often than not, Hitchcock subverts it. Yeah, and um, you know, obviously the business has changed um, since Hitchcock was alive to the point where yeah. stock and trade might be a little bit more of a valuable commodity than you know expanding out. But like right. when Hitch when when Zombie can 
you know, stretches muscles. He stretches his muscles to a beautiful effect. Well, and I and I think probably one of the most disappointing movies I've ever seen that I had a lot of faith in was uh was thirty one. Yeah. Um that one was rough, man, because the opening monologue of that scene is <laughs> Richard Brake, yeah. Yeah, is fantastic. He does a really great job and then just kind of the rest of the film just feels like it's like the passion is there, but it just does not execute it well. Right. Like it's my it's the same reason why I was bummed out by Overlord. Like it's <laughs> it's a fantastic action movie. Yeah. It's really cool. You know, Nazi Germany. Yeah. You know, kicking Nazi asses. Wyatt Russell. Yeah. Uh, yeah I dig awesome. It. <laughs> but the execution just for a lot of the scenes and a lot of the elements of that movie just leave a lot to be desired man like it's just it like it's still good like give it a shot it's it but it's definitely not one of like the most like head-turning horror movies you're ever gonna see yeah no i, I mean i've always thought of overlord as primarily like it's a world war ii movie first and a horror movie second and it, and it yeah. clearly shows that with the way it's drawing out certain scenes of tension well um, i mean i can touch on it if you want i don't want to i mean i can touch on my big thing what really just one example if you want yeah of why i didn't really what made it kind of a disappointment to me mm -hmm. um, i don't know i just don't want to take away from the whole hitchcock talk. oh um i know go right ahead yeah so uh one scene in that movie is so um you know if you're planning to watch it i'll try not to spoil it but basically you find out i mean nazis are doing experiments on you know people trying to create this, this super soldier kind of thing and so like that's just basically like a rough overview um and so they started you know testing on villagers um where they set up shop and so one of them they tested on was this girl's aunt. And, you know, we see our heroes living in this house. Or not living, but taking sanctuary in this house from the enemy. Right. Um, and so, you, you know, the da the aunt, uh, the niece is just like, don't go up there. My aunt's in there. She's not okay. You know, mm -hmm. they did things to her experiments, you know, and it really yeah, builds you know, a exactly. very ominous nature. And he even does, like, a close-in shot on, like, the door that's creaked into a room. And you see her just, like, walk by really quick. And so you're just like, oh, shit something's gonna happen later on when yeah. she's gonna burst out maybe she'll attack the heroes maybe she'll attack the nazis who knows later on in the movie nazis find where the heroes are staying in that house so they go and investigate it and they go up to the answer room and you're like oh shit the ant's gonna kill the nazis kind of scene like you're getting ready for this like bloody battle like the you know ant's probably gonna die but she's gonna take a few of them with her like like you know it's gonna be nuts yeah kind of like even so intense where it's just like even reminiscent of like inglorious bastards where they're in that bar scene you know yeah. and these things are getting nuts um and then as they're escaping the nazis you just see a cutaway scene or not even a cutaway scene but a faraway shot of where the ant gets supposedly shot and then blood appears on a window mm -hmm. and you don't see anything else yeah and that's what i'm talking about because like that scene would have been far better if they shown what happened in that room yeah because you don't get to see it you just know that there's a struggle and then gunfire and then blood on a window and that's it yeah and and that's and that's what really bums me out man because like overlord had this really big potential of having you know a an a movie you know budget scale to fulfill on a B movie effect level, and it didn't deliver yeah. on the promise. And it yeah. didn't, yeah. And it was just kind of a letdown because you're just like, it really bu builds up like this scene, like the ant's gonna fuck shit up. And maybe it's an extended scene, I don't know. But for the fact that like they didn't even like do anything for the final cut, and it's just like far away shot, blood on window. You're just like, oh, it's in it's it's in a diametric opposition to something like Psycho, where you have you have a setup like the mother in the in the ho in the ho in the house near the motel, yeah, and you actually see 
well, not mother, but the executions uh, of actions by mother yeah. um, up close and personal. And that's something that like Hitchcock does that that overlord. I agree. It kind of spare it spares out moments that it could utilize that B movie horror effect. Hitchcock takes something like Psycho, which is a B movie plot and yeah. elevates it while not skimping on the terror and yeah. the visual. Because well, he because he gives you a first person view yeah. to it in, in more than one way, like either like as the killer himself yeah via psycho or in like even in the birds like it's sh- like he's making you see these animals attack these people and just the terror and yeah know, to be hindering in a phone you know <laughs> yeah it's just like, it, like it, he's making you go through it yeah and when you take the audience out of something like that then you're taking this what the 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 trap the the feeling that you want them to have the fear the terror mm-hmm. the vulnerability um, and it's not a good horror movie if you can't really deliver on that in some sort of way. Yeah. I mean, even Ari Aster does it by touching into more of a mental type of stuff. Yeah. With like Midsommar talking about like heartbreak and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. You know, even Hereditary even being about grief. Yeah. Um, and so like when you take the audience out of that, then it's just like, well, then why should I be scared? Like, yeah. like you might as well be going through a haunted house. And then have the guy take off his mask and be like, oh, no, hey, I'm, my name is Steve. <laughs> I'm actually not a guy with a chainsaw that's going to chase you. Like, that that would kind of ruin it, right? I would love, like, at the same time, like, I'd love a horror movie to do that. <laughs> like, like just obviously, <laughs> like, I know it's not real. Yeah. But when you take away that, like, thin line of, like, you know, disbelief and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, like, our suspension of belief, you know, it's just like. Oh, well. Yeah. Okay. No, exactly. And, and and the thing that, like, you know, there are ways to do um, uh, restrained horror and yeah. over horror. Like, but they're in there. They, they can work simpatico with each other. Um, and like something like Overlord not embracing that subjective view that it could have with the mother scene yeah. is, a, you know, in opposition to something like Hitchcock doing with the birds where it kind of puts you right in the middle of that person's point of view. Yeah. Tippi Hedren specifically with in that scene with the glass phone booth, we'll get into it in a second, but, you know, she's, you know, we're, we are experiencing her terror within that moment after entering that little area. And in Overlord, you know, the the setup of the bomb, if you will, of the ant, yeah. Not going off um, uh, through a thematic sense is is a letdown. And it's it, you know, it's almost like you're fumbling with the bomb theory that Hitchcock supposes with yeah. Overlord. And it's and I agree, it's a little um, uh, disappointing in that respect. I mean, I still like the movie, but there's you know, there's obviously like there's there's issues that are inherent within it based off the way they chose to execute. Some stuff. Yeah. yeah. But. Um, we'll get into the birds now, um, but I do, oh God, I would love to talk more about Overlord at some point, because that's, <laughs> it's, I mean, because there's, because there's a part of me that has a, um, like a duality on my opinion about that, because there's like certain things that it's doing on a different level that I appreciate, yeah. but then the horror element kind of has a letdown to it. Um, but with the birds, <laughs> um, the, um, uh, the key things to go into this film is amongst other things, this is the uh, Hitchcock, Hitchcock was a master craftsman when it came to prepping his films, yeah. breaking down the scenes with storyboards and basically being ready to film. This is the one, one of the rare films where Hitchcock has to kind of fly by the seat of his pants because of the technology that's being used yeah. uh, to create the effect of the birds. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, the, the birds is a situation where this could have easily been a nightmare like or like a nightmare like in the final product and ends up being a film that if you watch 
the Blu-ray of the birds on a 4K TV, the the special effects hold up insanely well. Yeah. In a way that Birdemic can't hold up on any print. <laughs> like, but right. but again, Birdemic's you know its story is different, but it will be discussed because it is a very birds inspired film um, with what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the uh, the nature of the birds, you can't talk about the birds without first bringing up um, before the plot of Iwerks, who was a Disney guy. Yeah. Um, basically designed Mickey Mouse, um, worked within special photography uh, at the Disney studio. And the best way for the birds to be achieved was through the sodium vapor process, which was yellow screen. Uh, blue screen had been utilized up to this point in a primary uh function and facet because it was the quicker way to do things um but there was um and if you watch the documentary on the blu-ray all about the birds um they talk about the fact that the blue screen process process because it's lighting um is different than how the sodium process works uh there was a blue hue that would uh encompass the people that or the subject that was being filmed in the diametric opposition of a background so the yellow one uses two different sources of lighting in order to eliminate that halo and that's what you're able to how you're able to achieve something like the birds not just for the uh process shots and mat shots of people walking but also the birds themselves um and i think it's a it's a process that like pretty much it's a forebearer to cgi and um you know filming in front of a green screen the way you know i mean it's a, it's it's not a nice example but the way george lucas made the prequels um, yeah. you know i mean right. like nothing wrong with that but there's a forebearer to it of just like what's how can we improve this process and Ubi works was instrumental in doing that combined with albert whitlock's matte paintings you get a true feeling of terror in this town known as bodega bay um we'll jump right into it um the opening credits the design, it's not Saul Bass, it's another guy, but has that Saul Bass feel to it, the way Psycho did, where it's like, you know, something intriguing is happening within the opening and gets yeah. you ready for it. And the first thing you notice, no score. Yeah. Score is all done on electronic. Um, it's one of the earliest examples of electronic score. Bernard Herman is the supervisor of where that sound is placed, uh, but it generally is just the ma- electronic manipulation of sound. Um, within it, and it's using a synthesizer called the Mixture Tritonium, um, and uh, it was made in West Berlin. And Hitchcock and uh, Bernard Herrmann go over to West Berlin to hear the pitch by these guys on how to utilize different sounds, and this ends up being the impetus for the birds. And I think it's a score, yeah. If we want to, you know, because it for, Forbidden Planet has a very similar situation where. Um, the score is not traditional. It's a very electronic thing, but this is the forebearer of stuff that we get today with virtually anything Nicholas Wendy Griffin makes. But yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and like, I mean, uh, that's why I like the birds has always been such like a great subject for film studies or, uh, you know, even just kind of anyone, a fan of film in general, um, mm-hmm. just because it was basically what you're touching on is just like the turning point of like a more technical process for movies to be made Mm -hmm. and how they're made and the effects behind them. And, you know, um, and it kind of like, in a lot of ways, like the way I guess I want to relate it is like Kubrick had a very, was much in the same way as Hitchcock was with Mm -hmm. how much control he wanted over his film and how detail oriented he was. Mm -hmm. And so, 
you know, uh, you, you see that a lot with the birds. You see that a lot with attention to detail and everything that he wanted in every single one of those shots. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't want to get like too far ahead, but um, one could argue, you know, what is what is the cost of a good shot? You know? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But on a more technical side of things, like he, he there was a good turning point. Like it showed that films could be taken from just a ve- just a regular reel to and you know what we already knew how they were made to something what we know now where yeah. it's like either you have these giant operatic operatic you know you know symphony orchestras making just you know quirky sounds for a comedy movie or over the top you know scenes for like <laughs> yeah. star wars or whatever um to you know even just like what we're talking about of like even people even it just being one dude making music for one indie film um you know it's it's kind of insane that it all started I, I wouldn't say with the birds, but I do want to say like it pioneered that. It pioneered that it showed that this is possible. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely like the one of among the earliest examples of like this is this is where it can go. And then John Carpenter arguably main streamlines it with yeah. his scores for not just uh, uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, but also just like everything going forward, especially like you know the thing. Uh, Morricone does the music, but there's also a lot of Carpenter in there because yeah. a lot of Morricone's score is not used for that film. Yeah. Um. And so it's it's a, and it's a way with the birds to hook you into just the atmosphere of it. And like, there's only one piece of actual music, or uh, traditional music in the film, and that comes later in the plot. But yeah, we have this 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 very chaotic opening credit sequence, and then we fade into San Francisco and yeah kind of coming down the street and tippy hedron's walking by some uh, a boy whistles at her and she turns and gives a coy look it's actually a reference to an ad that she had done that ran over the today show um for a for another company that hitchcock saw and then that's what drew his attention to tippy hedron so there was a little wink and a nod there yeah um you also get hitchcock's cameo walking out uh walking out the store with two with his two dogs so yeah uh, doing cameo with respect to him doing cameos way before stanley yeah <laughs> <laughs> r.i.p you think they're just sitting up there talking about like who was better at cameos than the other oh like... it's stanley <laughs> i mean hitchcock started it but stanley perfected it <laughs> listen true believer <laughs> uh, you may have walked by but i had dialogue <laughs> i had dialogue exactly man that... I, I i hung out in space multiple i cut chris hemsworth's yeah, hair chris what hemsworth. did you do <laughs> i hung out with the watchers did you hang out with the watchers no you didn't you looked at tippy Hendrick. i drove a school bus you walked off a train with a with a big violin or a oh no it's of the big of a cello yeah <laughs> but just like some mad dissing going up there Look, look, I don't read your funny books. I really, I never gave a shot. Well, Spider who? <laughs> Just like slaps him. You know who it is. Spider-Man, you son of a bitch. Just like, they get nuts. Just. <laughs> I've been this I insulted don't, I don't, since I worked with Jack Kirby. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Touching on some touchy, yeah. touchy, nerd, oh, t- history t- touchy right subject there because everybody has an opinion and uh, and then there's also realities. Um, but you know, like, so we got the cameo out of the way and whatnot. We entered this bird shop and already we're you know setting up the motif of the film and whatnot. And um, Tippy Hedren um, uh, plays Melody Daniels, uh, yep. socialite. Um, 
you know, uh, bit of a prankster, bit of a practical joker, if you will. And kind of like it, 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 she was definitely made in like what the modern, you know, uh, woman was then. Yeah. You know, or what, what the modern woman wanted to be, the modern girl wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and a lot of ways also kind of the exact opposite of that too yeah um it was also mostly just kind of like the ideal i would argue at least just my own personal perspective the ideal woman that hitchcock had in his mind yeah very much so um, and and and, i mean there's there's obviously baggage attached to that but it is important to note and i think it's it's interesting with the birds for the majority of this film she's driving the plot like her her her, she's making choices and like now granted the choices that she's making are, you know, constructed out of Hitchcock's not just ideal, but also kind of right. the way st- the structure of women in society was at the time. But right. it's but, interesting that she's more proactive than Rod Taylor to a certain extent. Right. Which I would argue, like I know Tippi Hedren gets a little shit for the birds with just how like overdramatic she is. Mm-hmm. I would say that she was going off. I would say that gives her more cred in the fact that. Um, she's a professional and she was doing the job she was given despite of a lot of the issues going on at the time. Again, I'm not going to yeah. try to get too far ahead. Yeah, I know, yeah. But, um, I mean, you could argue she was overly dramatic, but Tippi Hedren was versatile. She knew she she could be in any role and she, she pushed herself um, even to breaking points and, and I think she's just a total badass yeah, for it. I agree. She's an ultimate badass. And this is her, this is her first film. This yeah. is, That's the thing. This is her first film and she... yeah. You know, obviously, like within within all the aspects that will be discussed, you know, Hitchcock was her dramatic coach, and she he did train her in a lot of the basics. And and Hitchcock did say within the Francois Truffaut interviews that she didn't have to unlearn anything. Yeah. So um, so that, there's that aspect of it, but she comes off strong in the movie in a way that like I think is uh is um impervious to criticism well one thing one thing i always think that's kind of a shame is that tippy hendren doesn't get a lot of love for being one of the very first screen screen queens yeah um you know i mean she she we we talked about this on the podcast before um and you can still listen to the episode it's episode three i believe Mm -hmm. um early on we talked about how you see mostly women in horror being the focal point whether it's they are the villain or they're the hero or you know they are the motivational yep. you know element something they always play some sort of strong point i mean you exactly. have the ones that play the that they'll i mean you don't see it as much these days you still kind of see it every now and then but you know have the ones that are typecasted as like the the bimbos that get killed off early and that is literally how they are written i am i am not trying to be offensive in any way that is just how they are written. <laughs> oh yeah no that it's how it, they are described th- that's that's um, not that's not our fault that's the 80s <laughs> fault but, <laughs> or but, any other era but. but if you kind of like come back to it and the examples i always love going to uh is is you know aliens you know mm-hmm. um sigourney reaver in that movie is is she is also arguably a scream queen in yeah. her own right um, but she's a badass in Aliens 1 and 2. And also in the other ones, I know the other ones get shit, but right. she still maintains that badass quality of yeah. hers. Um, and same thing with Jeremy Lee Curtis. And, you know, even no, very, even Vera Famiga now, uh, Samara Weaving, one of the newest uh, Scream Queens to yep. come out of, I know, the wet work. Um, and so, I, you know, T.P. Hendren kind of started that, you know, making moving plots along being the focus you know because it's the birds wouldn't be the birds without tippy hendren everybody always says the birds wouldn't be the birds without average hitchcock and although that's true it also wouldn't be the same without tippy being there's the protagonist yeah it's a coexisting mold within this because she's able to bring a strength to it and 
you know, right from the get-go in the plot, like, you know, she's instigating the conversation with Rod Taylor, who plays uh, Mitch Brenner. Yeah. Because he comes into the shop and, you know, he's, you know, he's, his his motivation for approaching somebody like Melody is because she's um, uh, a socialite who's in the papers because of her prankster behavior. Yeah. Um, but, like, she instigates, you know, like, the interaction with within that yeah. discussion where she has to <laughs> i love that she's like pretending she knows shit about birds yeah to, to keep the conversation going <laughs> <laughs> um and you know man like that you know her also being a prankster like that also kind of went against a lot of what was expected of a woman back then too i know earlier attention i mentioned you know hitchcock's version of a woman but like it's just also something that needs to be said is that she what you know her character is what was what women were considered you know jobly duties back then what they're supposed to be she was kind of the opposite of that yeah in the birds too and so like it was also kind of like this big turning point and obviously i can't speak for all women you know i'm uh, i'm a feminist from a male's perspective yeah so uh, take from that what you will yeah um but you know she definitely was definitely what you didn't expect you know yeah she definitely went against the mold of the typical housewife you know we're being bred to be housewife it stands out yeah it stands so. out it stands out more than other characters yeah i mean I, i'd argue that it even like it, it goes beyond what we're able to do to a certain extent with janet lee and psycho because janet lee for the first 40 minutes of psycho is instigating a lot of the plot like yeah. that's she's driving that but I mean, Melanie Daniels gets further than Tibby Hedren to a certain point, and it's 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 a fascinating watch. And the idea of her being a prankster, like I should I mean, should have mentioned this prior, but before Rod Taylor comes in, she's she's trying to get a minor bird. Yeah, and I mean, just, so like already we know she's gonna try to fuck with somebody using a talking bird. Well, you know, <laughs> and women back then were expected to mind their manners, be respectful, speak when spoken to, don't speak over a man, yada yada yada. Mm. And then you got. You know, Melody coming in and just being a total, like, you know, sarcastic butthole, you know, what we all love to be. And I do mean that in the highest of compliments yeah. because, like, it's true, man. Like, you don't – back then they didn't – you know, that was considered rude of a woman to be like that. And now we look at it and we're just like, hell yeah. Yeah. She's <laughs> she's she's more active and she's got she, she's got a personality and a mind. And yeah. Like, like, and now and, – and She's he, not just a body. Yeah. And it's – what's fascinating is that there's there's, you know, there's a double-edged sword when it comes to Hitchcock's female characters because of different affectations that, that spread – across the entire filmography and i mean uh up till this point i've always felt that like grace kelly for all the flack that she gets in rear window she's very much the badass in that movie yeah it's well, undeniable and, you know, uh, and the birds is a great coming back to the birds still you yeah know, these this was bringing in a type of horror that we haven't seen up to this point you know um you know i talked about you know other creature features at the time being you know giant salamanders and whatnot um what we were looking at that was just really weird types of sci-fi horror. Yeah. Was it cool? Absolutely. Like there somebody, whether it's cause it's super corny um, or just like really visually, you know, interesting, like somebody loves those movies for some reason. Giant ants, man. Who doesn't love giant, giant ants? Like that's <laughs> all I dreamed about becoming when I was a kid one day. <laughs> it's just a giant ant. That's what Stan Lee dreamed about, but he dreamt smaller. Ant-Man. <laughs> Ant-Man. Um, I mean, arguably, he does become Giant-Man, so I would say. Oh, God, it's my favorite part of Civil War. My favorite part of Civil War. Not Sp I like Spider-Man in it, but my favorite part is when Paul Rudd becomes Giant-Man and he yeah. just goes, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, man, I mean, what we were seeing in horror at the time is, okay, well, Hitchcock introduced us to the fact that we can touch on different types of horror, things that scare people. 
So what are other things in this area that scare people? What are other things that we can expand on? How far can we go? And you kind of start seeing the early stages of horror finally pushing that line. I mean, um, Evil Dead 2, which is always going to be my favorite movie no matter what, and Evil Dead um really even is a syn- synonymous with that with how far it pushes its you know themes yeah even just being a student film like it still pushes its, its themes yeah and so coming back to the birds you know having a, a female character play what goes against you know what was considered a female back then is pushing limits you know having creatures that do exist that we can see outside attack people and you know kill people tangible real tangible yeah. reality becoming uh, becoming a threat, and it was pushing limits. Like it was pushing what what was considered okay or yeah. shocking back then. Oh yeah, and so you know the birds. You know again, getting a more nod to that was started was part of that early stage of seeing where can horror go. Because I mean, without without that, you know, who knows if we could get something as creative as aliens? You oh know, yeah, or even like as something like Killer Class from Outer Space or The Blob. <laughs> Um, you know, or even Chucky, you know, I don't think back then you, if you told the premise about Chucky to <laughs> someone who just got out of the birds, that they would want to see that, you know, they'd be terrified. Hitch, so you... hitch, hitch, hitch. <laughs> got an idea for you. I mean, it wasn't unheard because they definitely had killer <laughs> dolls, but they, you never seen it to the point of like. Yeah. Cause oh. even before Child's Play, you had the, like the, 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 um, trilogy of terror with the yeah. Zimmy doll and yeah, yeah. but like. But, like, you never saw, like, a doll, like, calling someone a bitch and then, like, stabbing them, trying to stab them in the face over and over. I like the idea of Hitchcock getting a script like that and be like, no, I, just, <laughs> I, I, I don't think they're ready. For, I, I thought they weren't ready for Psycho, but I just, there, there's a lot of C words in here. <laughs> lot, I don't like this. <laughs> Look, I, I, I just, I, I mean, Brad Dourif isn't famous yet. I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, thank you. Thank you, young Don Mancini. Right, right, <laughs> right. yeah. But... This is all unrealistic because Don Mancini is probably like five. Like... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Later, Mr. Hitchcock. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, and she's, and she, even when Rod Taylor or when Mitch calls out her lack of knowledge and whatnot you know yeah. she doesn't back down or anything like yeah that. no she is definitely like oh fuck you and if, if anything she ups the ante so she loses her idea about the minor bird which you know lost opportunity we could have had a talking bird sidekick throughout the entire birds <laughs> going like we're fucked <laughs> uh, disney had a copyrighted at the time oh yeah. my gosh well yeah. i mean they're, they had the talking animal thing you know what's funny is <laughs> after psycho um hitchcock among the projects he was considering was a film um, that called the blind man, and it would have had James Stewart re- uh, as a man who regains his sight by receiving the eyes of a dead man, and he starts seeing um, things through the eyes of a murderer, uh, all taking place at Disneyland. And apparently, yeah. the only reason it isn't filmed is because Disney saw Psycho, and he said, "I don't want that freak filming in my park." <laughs> and then you got Disney like putting out traumatic shit left and right. They're like, no, With- this this is healthy for the kids. Like- Scares them straight into not liking commies. Great. This <laughs> yeah. this one is just a freak. Well, fuck you, Walt. <laughs> right? Seriously, I mean, uh, like, I mean, if, uh, Disney's lying to themselves if they if they firmly believe they've never scarred kids yeah. with their own animated shows it's, or whatever. It's, it's an interesting double standard. Like, I mean, it's it's understandable to a point, but like, right. you know... Like, horror is still horror. You can, <laughs> It doesn't matter how you tie it up. Yeah. If you have horror in it, it's a horror movie. Like, pure yeah. and simple. Like, yeah. And I will argue that 
any day. I and I told and I'm and I'm with you because like there's there's many films that have the horror label. I think Joker is one of the more poignant horror movies of last year. Like other than like, I mean it it did not make my top ten, but Joker's a film that I yeah. I've seen. I watched saw it once in the theater and I was not as impressed as other people. But I was like, but this is a good horror movie. It's like a comic book version of portrait of a Henry portrait of a serial killer. Yeah. But then I rewatched it. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm even digging more into the horror aesthetics. Yeah. Know? I still haven't watched it yet. So uh, I, I got to do it. I, oh, it's unfortunately it's the way I see movies is always through streaming. That's, um, that's fair. that, that, uh, it's not that I don't like going to the theater. I actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of, kind it comes back to two things. One, biggest thing finances other thing <laughs> is because i even talked uh, like on the podcast is is that I, i'm not a big fan of being in big crowds for a long time yeah i feel um, and so like movie theaters aren't as big of a deal but just like getting my mindset going into walking around people dealing with people yeah um you know is 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 kind of can be a little trying every now and then not to, and i'm not trying to be a sympathy case just more so no 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 it's no i mean i mean um, also majority like uh, when I can go see it, it's either my wife has to stay home and watch the kiddo, or, yeah. or the kiddo has to go with me. And I don't think you know my five year old's ready for the Joker yet. <laughs> no, once upon a time Hollywood's fine though. Yeah, totally okay. <laughs> it's like, totally uh, fine. Read, Only one real horror. I actually scene. read screenplays of Quentin Tarantino too. Right <laughs> it's just oh boy. <laughs> Yeah, we're about to do uh, we're about to do the Hateful Eight. Really excited oh, for that lovely, one. Yeah, lovely. lots of heavy use of the word. Oh gosh, word on that, that one. halfway point is going to be very interesting for her development. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so anyway, um, uh, Rod, Mitch, re- Mitch leaves the bird shop, and Melody decides oh, I'm going to you know play a prank on him. I'm going to bring these love birds uh, over yeah. to him as a joke. Uh, she goes to his apartment, leaves the birds outside, and. Um, the the most the, the the worst neighbor imaginable who just unveils every detail about his neighbor's life to the stranger. Yeah. Like I'm I it's the one thing in the birds when I rewatch it every time I'm just like, fuck this guy. Like he's just giving her the I mean, granted we need him to get her to Bodega Bay. Yeah. But like I don't want my neighbor telling people what I do on the weekend. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that's some uh that's some sketchy shit, you yeah. Yeah, it's just like he and he is and he's so like matter i'm like oh he he's not at home he he goes over to bodega bay every weekend what I, also, I would also say probably the most unrealistic like representation of neighbors ever i don't know i mean about anyone else but yeah. i don't even talk to any of my neighbors yeah exactly it's it's just it's i mean like you know there's that whole thing about like we left our doors unlocked when we were younger back in the you know 40s 50s and 60s i'm like I <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can't. Say, I love that notion, but no. <laughs> I'm sure, there's some small towns in America, yeah, somewhere that did that. I mean, it's whatever. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I even if I was back then, I would still lock my door and be like, I don't, I don't trust these people. <laughs> yeah, but at any rate, she goes. She decides to go to Bodega Bay, so there, she's driving, and right. like right off the bat, you're seeing beautiful Albert Whitlock matte paintings combined with the. Uh, exteriors of Northern mm-hmm. California, and uh, you know, and you know, a little puppet of the birds, you know, swaying with the motion of the cars as a kind yeah. of cute little humor piece. She gets to Bodega Bay. She uh, learns where the Brenner household is, and in the Brenner household is Mitch, uh, his younger sister Kathy, and his um, and his mother Lydia, and um, Lydia played by Jessica Tandy, um, who. You know, it was a Hitchcock mainstay, amongst other things, but also married to Hume Cronin and uh, 
Uh, if you've ever wanted to watch the most adorable and uh, amazing married old couple on screen, watch Batteries Not Included. So yeah, you know, and they're and they're both in it, and they're amazing. But I, I'm surprised I'm not the only one that knows that movie. I you know I got to it late. Brad Haig and uh, James Hart from Real Nerds are the ones who got me into it. Okay. and they told they they pitched it to me correctly. Where they're just like it's about old people who reminisce and are trying to live live their lives. I'm like, oh, I'm sold. I love geezer yeah. exploitation. I love it. And then you know I watch. And I'm just crying my fucking eyes out. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely. Uh... And Mick Garris wrote the story for that, so I'm just like, yet another reason why Mick Garris is an unsung genius. And I think that was another Disney movie too, wasn't it? Uh, uh no, it's was, not. Was, was it, it, it was supposed to be an Amazing Stories episode, okay. uh, but then got uh, reworked. And I think it just has like a very Disney-like aesthetic from it, the outside. It, it does. It very much does. Um, and but so she gets to Bodega Bay. She learns where they are. She decides to rent a boat. Um. Completely lies about the fact that she knew, that she doesn't know how to drive a boat, and whatnot. But right. I gotta say, she for an am, for an amateur on a boat, she knows how to fucking cruise along the you know, bay. For as many things as like the birds started off for great <laughs> stuff in film and horror, they it also started off some pretty weird stuff with like that exact scene. We're just like for some reason our hero just even though openly admitting she doesn't know how to drive a boat, just all of a sudden can drive a boat. You know, oh like, the, yeah, the lo- yeah we yeah, we'll get into it, but I mean, there's logic issues in the birds. There's odd, there's logic issues in every movie. Yeah, and if anybody wants to give me shit about us one more time, I'm going to go to bat and say how many plot holes are there in Avengers Endgame? Um, you know, like yeah, but it's it's irrelevant. I mean, like it's a movie. It's not it, real. <laughs> well, it's, it's the same thing that we preach on the podcast, man. Is like it love the movies that you love no matter what yeah but at least be willing to criticize them for what they are exactly like i still love the first thor movie but i will agree with every criticism against it because it's valid mm. like it's corny it's you know weirdly paced <laughs> all other you know everything you've already heard about it's the it. most intriguing kenneth Branagh movie in that regard <laughs> right like i'm just i'm just a big proponent about like not blindly supporting something that is obviously bad yeah you know like if you like something that's bad fantastic man like bravo but just like be willing to admit yeah 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 be able to, to be able to balance it in your mind i mean yeah, like, i mean like, i i mean i understand the, the 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 problems with us but like i'm but i'm able to appreciate it regardless of yeah. its blemishes uh it, same with the shadow like i should probably be loving the shadow as much as i do but i, I fucking do <laughs> i kind of look at it as like my bet the, me- the metaphor i like to use is like uh is microwave lasagna <laughs> that's like, a good one yeah like it takes a little work to get it warmed up you know, and get warmed up to the fact that you're going to eat it. Right. But, and it's not actual, you know, in restaurant made lasagna, but it still tastes like lasagna. Yeah. It's... You know what you're buying it to? You're going to eat lasagna. Yeah. That's so... how I feel about Tombstone Pizzas. I yeah. know it's not really a pizza, but it's a pizza. <laughs> it tastes great. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm getting what I paid for. Yeah. So she drives the boat across the bay to get there. And um, it's, it's important to note this is amongst the many Hitchcock tropes, mostly a silent sequence. Yeah. Um. Up until and like you know, Hitchcock is very careful about using selective sound to create the near illusion of pure cinema, which is using s- zero sound yeah. and zero dialogue cards. And there's many instances of it. Well, yeah, like the si- the scene is relatively silent. Like, out. I mean, even the electronic score is pretty much ceased well, up until the bird comes absolutely. and attacks her. Well, and you know, and this is and this is. The, I'm glad you're bringing that up because, like, that's a perfect example of like I, why I say he definitely has an art house aesthetic. Yeah, with the th- the scenes he does. I mean, you don't really see those type. You, you 
if you tried doing that today, it would be considered like an indie shot, you know, something that you would see in an indie film. Or devoid of good sound design. Yeah, like, I mean, like yeah. people would be like, was there an editing issue? <laughs> yeah. Did I, somebody... <laughs> it's so amazing you brought that up because I was thinking that today. I'm just like, man, you can't do what Hitchcock was doing in those yeah. small ways. Everybody would be like, what, are you unprofessional with your sound? Right. I'd be like, no, it was intentionally a fucking moron. Yeah, But, right. you know, like, whatever. It's what it is. I mean, like... It, and obviously the art form develops and evolves. But, yeah, I mean, it is something that we would consider an art house style today. And at the time, you know, Hitchcock's just going off of where he started, which was silent film. Yeah. Like he, you know, he makes his mark with something like The Lodger and um, really like learns how to tell that story with apps, virtually nothing in the way of dialogue other than a few dialogue cards. And like the closer you can get to having no dialogue cards is when you're like achieving what his theory of pure cinema is. Yeah. Um, and so that sequence in particular is very good at, at, at capturing your attention and creating a form of tension. I mean, she breaks right into their house, which by the way, love Melanie Daniels. Don't break into people's houses. This <laughs> <laughs> uh, shouldn't be something that we have to touch on. But yeah. Hey, man. Oh no, no. It's, it's, it's a mind. It's not, it's not a quibble of logic. It's more of just like, don't break into the fucking house. Like, but, um, and oh, well, so within that moment, she does meet the school teacher, um, uh, who's, uh, sorry, I want to make sure I get her name right. Cause it's a little hard. She plays Annie Hayworth, but her name is Suzanne Plachette. Um, and Annie Hayworth has some history with Mitch. So, yeah. um, and it's important to bring up at this point that Mitch as a character within the birds is probably the most progressive male character in a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. Which he is, is really odd. Surprise. I, I thought of this last night. It is as if though Mitch is what Norman Bates would be if Norman Bates had a sane upbringing. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's you know there's a bit of mother devotion to it, but it's a healthier boundary. Yeah, I mean it's not going to be him dressing up as his mom anytime soon. I mean I have no opposition to Rod Taylor and drag, but <laughs> I mean whatever you do in the bedroom, man, is your thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's just walking around in a dress. One day I'll play Winston Churchill in a weird movie for a guy with who ran a video store. Like, you just know, you wait, guy just, who doubts me. Just you. But, just you. I'll show oh, you. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to be working with Mike, some boy named Mike Myers and a young man named Michael <laughs> Fassbender. Um, but, you know, and, and at the end of the day, he's a character that, you know, he's much more tender. I mean, he's got his smarmy side, obviously, within the first couple of scenes he's in where he kind of throws out the screwball Cary Grant-esque role yeah but he is you know a very grounded and very realistic uh and uh, primarily unoffensive male character which I find utterly fascinating in the Burns each time I watch it's it's he's not weak but he's not like he's yeah. not he's not He's not toxically pushing his max masculinity out there. Right. And the few times where he becomes traditional masculine are moments where it's necessary and not where it's unnecessary. Well, you know what's weird about it, man? Because I know I know we already touched on it, and so I'm not going to go back in real detail into it. But talking about, you know, talked about like Tibby Hendren was kind of this starting place of strong women in horror. Yeah. Um, and you see that with the men kind of being going against their own gender roles, what was expected back then. Exactly. But what's weird about it is through the decades that you see women become more and more like apparent horror, more like important elements where you see men kind of become this like 
loose you know narrative you either have <laughs> you, i guess the the typecast they would usually be at is either the the quiet soft guy um who just as quiet and soft or the douchey jock or yeah the jock um, asshole yeah yeah but yeah. then when you see uh, and we reviewed this movie as well um and i'm gonna probably do that a lot because we review a lot of movies <laughs> um is uh, as above so below where you see gender roles be swapped you know early on where yeah. it's the female is, you know, the reckless one who's brave, who wants to go and, you know, explore, you know, these tombs in France. And then you have the male lead who is the more cautious, the sciencey, you know, we shouldn't do this. Yeah. Um, but both were very progressive, but they just switched their own generals. And so, like, coming back to the birds, um, you see that as well. Yeah. And so, again, another mainstay of, like, what it started out is showing that, you know, guys don't have to always be a huge masculine like i will save you jane kind of thing um you can see them where just like i will save you jane if that's what you're cool with I mean, yeah. it's fine if you're not i just born here for comedic relief kind of thing you know what i mean like like uh, it, it it showed that there's that they don't have to be the same thing i love the idea of hitchcock's tarzan now yeah. <laughs> it's totally cool whatever i mean if you want to swing around it's do you want to wear this? No, this is too revealing. I get it. Alma, I don't think this is working. I mean, and that line costs ridiculous. I don't. I, but um, yeah. So he and 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 you know, it's uh, we'll bring this up now because we want to do get into the horror element of this a little bit too. But um, uh, or the more traditional um horror element. Um, there's a film historian named Andrew Serres. He passed away in 2012. He was very influential within the film criticism community, uh, specifically also having uh, duels of the pen with Pauline Kael. Uh, but Andrew Serres was a big proponent of the auteur theory. Uh, and amongst the things he discussed with Hitchcock was the themes of the birds. And uh, this is a quote. You can find this on Wikipedia. Um, it's from 1998. And I just wanted to kind of read this because I think it's very important. Um, I mean, and, and granted, your interpretation of a film is what you make of it. It's a very subjective point of view for right. every viewer, as my uh, real nerds host Ryan likes to point out, and it's true. But uh, this is Saris's take. The theme of the film, after all, is complacency, as the director has stated on innumerable occasions. When we first meet each, each of the major characters, their infinite capacity of self-absorption is em emphasized. Tempe Hedren's bored socialite is addicted to elaborately time-consuming practical jokes. Rod Taylor's self-righteous lawyer flaunts his arrogant sensuality. Uh, Sel Suzanne Plachette, his ex-fiancee, wallows in self-pity. And Jessica Tandy, his possessive mother, cringes from, fe from her fear of loneliness. With such complex and unsympathetic characters to contend with, um, that's one of the issues I take with his statement, but the audience begins to identify with the point of view of the birds, actually the inhuman point of view. So yeah. um, there's, I mean, obviously I have issues with that statement to a certain extent because I don't feel like they're unsympathetic. In fact, contrastly, we spend a lot of time with these characters to feel for them so that when somebody like Suzanne Plachette's character, Annie, is killed, yeah. we feel bad because like she, this is a woman who, you know, came to Bodega Bay on the pretenses of a relationship with Mitch that doesn't work out. Yeah. Um. So, like, we we have a character that's. What's interesting is that this is a very female dominated movie, and regardless of the politics of the time, it is interesting to note that the primary male character is Mitch, and maybe a few background characters, but there are yeah. three leading women surrounding this right. one male character. Like, so it's in a sense it, as it furthers your statement about this being like a very big proponent that of what horror would become. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't push the importance of Taylor to the side. 
um, and nor does it contradict or uh, create any major problems for the male for the female characters themselves. I mean, it you know it takes a character like Tandy's character who could be the Norma Bates of this universe and breaks her down to an actual point. That scene where they're talking, yeah, where yeah. she's in bed, is very very poignant to like how Mitch grows up, how Kathy grows up, and how she was a mother. Um, but, um, I thought it was important to bring that up because so at this point, Hedron is attacked by the first bird and it's the small taste of horror he gives you up front while we're going to yeah. continue with this character drama. Um, Mitch goes in, bandages her up. They kind of discuss like, okay, well, I, I was here to play a joke on you. And then we're starting to see the development of this relationship, which correlates with the birds attack, bird attacks, um, to a certain extent. Um, and this will be brought up a little bit later too. They go back to the house. She meets Kathy, sweetest little girl in the world. Um, you know, gets like they, they talk. They, she gets to know the entire family. Jessica Tandy meets her prior, and you know, is suspicious of her because she is a little bit more of a possessive, domineering mother to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say less possessive and domineering than somebody like Norma, or at least the image of Norma. Um, and you know. Gets to know everybody and kind of lies about knowing Annie Pryor so that she could stay at the house, stay at her house so she could be around Mitch. Um, and, you know, we're seeing the development of this relationship. And Tippy Hedron is an outside force coming into Bodega Bay that upends the balance, um, not just with Mitch's relationships with other women in his life, but also the, 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 upsets the nature of bodega bay and its calmness um now it's a correlation that can be interpreted multiple ways i i personally don't tend to connect the two too closely because you tread into too analytical of a water there um because it also goes in opposition of the fact that like nature is just striking back because nature's pissed off or you know tired of being taken taken for granted but the birds is kind of a Rorschach where you can kind of apply a lot of different um, metaphor and meaning behind each of the different themes flowing through it. Um, well, and I mean, really at its core, like the birds, like is, is a creature feature. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the common theme in every creature feature movie um, is always nature striking back in some sort of way or taking on some sort of like, uh, supernatural or unnatural like forms so, yeah like you know if we take something as extreme as extreme as like lake placid <laughs> you know we have a giant you know crocodile lives in this lake who's eating bears and you know people and just fucking shit up um and so like great movie and we're kind of terrified going murky waters um and so that's like if that would be the most extreme of an example when you come back to the birds being arguably compared to it the most calm of it yeah um you 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 know you you keep seeing the same theme of nature striking back or nature taking over um nature taking what it feels is its rightful place amongst the food chain yeah um and so it's you know uh, just kind of like everything we're touching on is just birds you know Uh, uh, they're supposed to be the evolved form of like dinosaurs so how do we make that terrifying yeah you know how do we uh uh make that you know something that people are scared of and then just kind of touching on like for example with what you said of the first bird attacking uh what that happened what he did what he did at that point was not just scare you he kind of put the seed in your head of this could happen yeah you know this can happen where a bird will attack that's the most logical 
attack in the movie yeah. like from a realistic standpoint yeah. bird can hit you over the head like mm-hmm. you can joke about it but like coming back to earlier what i was talking about with like you know videos of dudes being chased by geese like any any you know gruff guy would be like oh, guess i'm just gonna have dinner early that night <laughs> like that dude's probably gonna like scream like a girl yeah <laughs> and, and i and i know no shot to any women just like but you get what i mean like high-pitched scream yeah <laughs> if he gets chased by like little robin yeah no it's it's <laughs> and it's it's a situation where you with with this kind of creature feature it is it is creating a tangible reality and something that when fully blossomed is unrealistic. Yeah. Um, in the way it's orchestrated specifically in the birds, because the, the coordination of the attack by these birds is, uh, is, is utterly fascinating. And it, it it's, it's, it, you know, it's planned meticulously by Hitchcock within the confines of like, uh, possible error in the special effects and the wrangling of these birds. Right. Um, which it should be pointed out that these birds, like there's a combination of different things. There's matte shots and sodium, uh, sodium shots of these birds. There's also actual birds on set. A lot of things that were planned for these initial shots of the birds, like such as um, them going through the chimney into the house. Um, only a lot of, only so much of that was able to be practical within the set. Yeah. And then other elements um, had to be used with the sodium process. So it's kind of like an early form of green screen acting in that respect. Yeah. Um, so, Within all of this, you know, we've got a bird attack that happens prior and nothing really happens for a little bit within that respect other than character development, which is, you know, a lovely prospect for these characters. She goes to stay with Annie. Bird hits the door. It's not dark out. Bird yeah. Bird doesn't have a loss of direction. The full moon out, yeah. you know, and that's what she points out. And, it, uh, and we move along from that point um, to the birthday party. Yeah. And where we get, I mean, the and what's funny about the birds is that as far back as the beginning of this podcast, it has been the primary first Hitchcock film you see for a lot of people. It certainly was for me. Uh, it has been for a lot of other people because the idea of a bird attacking you yeah. is terrifying. It's yeah. absolutely nuts. I hated peacocks when I was a kid. Right. I absolutely hated them. I never went to the zoo. I never liked going to the zoo for that reason. I was scared shitless of these plumage-ridden birds. Like, yeah. You know, like, I was... Because they, they're aggressive. They are aggressive birds. Um, they, I mean, when you're that fabulous, you got to make up for it with being overly offensive. Yeah, it turns aggressive. out... You know, it turns out they weren't, like, trying to attack me. They were just trying to show off their, their, their sexiness. And I agree. <laughs> you know, you know, whatever. But um, but anyway, you know, when you get to that birthday party, the the relationship between Melanie and Mitch, yeah, is very much becoming a lot more clear and blossoming. And within that blossoming, the biggest attack to date, more coordinated attack comes at this birthday party, which is in a terrifying moment in a series of montage with different shots of right. birds running into balloons and like tackling the children to the ground or like you know impacting them to the point where they hit the ground well and what's so cool about this shot and just everything leading up to it is that you're we're witnessing two things happen where it's one we're now witnessing a theme in horror where thing where the terror the terror on itself is getting increasingly um what is perceived by the protagonist worse but is escalating throughout the movie where prior to this um when you had horror in anything it was always kind of this the same thing in some sort of way so like for example, I'll go back to you know those movies that we're talking about with the giant salamander, with the giant ants. Yeah. Um, 
it would always just be it's a giant salamander or a giant ant just attacking <laughs> the same or similar way. You know, it was it never really escalated on itself other than, you know, becoming maybe it attacks a city or whatever. Yeah. Or kills, you know, a little more people. But it still stayed within its same wheelhouse, its same context. Whereas you see one bird attack one person to a whole birthday party of birds not just attacking adults, but also something you don't really see too much of attacking kids too yeah you know because the, the kind of thought was you know kids are off limit kind of thing and, <laughs> nope, and, not for... and, and hitchcock's like fuck that they're going down too no 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 <laughs> we're gonna torture them we're gonna, i'm sorry we have to i know i know i know i'm a jerk but <laughs> well, like and you gotta think about it man like the american uh birthday you know everybody has in the mind it's always in the backyard there's maybe a clown or you know bounce house or whatever um, and it's supposed to be like the safe spot. Maybe there's like a little bit of family drama. But yeah. Other than that, like you never really see you think of something terrible happening like that because there's multiple there's all these people in this one space. Everybody can group together. To yeah. Protect these kids. Exactly. And then once you take that, once you add an element where they can't do that, trying to fight off swarm of birds <laughs> yeah you kind of like realize like holy shit nothing's he, safe he does upset the traditional american birthday party as you pointed out yeah. yes it, it, that's exactly it and he brings it's something that he started with in shadow of a doubt and then kind of comes full circle into other films specifically this he's upending the complacent american yeah. nature well i mean if you look at it you know even just going back to psycho like every killing that happens in that movie is usually via one person you don't really see him like killing a group of people. No. And so the thought there is like, okay, well, this guy has to kill one on one. You know, he can be overpowered. And then, you know, that's the only place terror can go. And then Hitchcock's like, hell no. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. You don't know what I'm fucking capable of. No. You, you, th you thought the one man, you thought the one man with the butcher knife was something? Get ready yeah. for this shit. <laughs> Imagine birds with butcher knives. And they had to watch this shit. <laughs> They had to talk Alfred out of that scene. Like, we can have the birds attack. We just can't have them hold knives. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. um, can they wear dresses? <laughs> look, look, Roger, Roger the Raven. I understand that the knives would help you get into character, but just I'm, I've got something breathing down my neck. It's called Lou Wasserman, and he's pissed. So you got to get rid of the knives. I know we spent a whole day filming with you, you know, practicing your knife skills. There's like <laughs> all these like small little knives they made specifically for each bird. Did the guy like paint like missed out on his kid's birthday to make them for this one shot? Finds out they're not being used. He's like, "Fuck it!" Look, I know there was a scene, Roger, where it's, you were. No, fuck you, Hitchcock. <laughs> fuck you. Don't even know, man. You know where I've been. You don't <laughs> know done... what went into this, man. You don't know what kind of nests I've flown into. My you blisters don't... have blisters. <laughs> <laughs> what? Is, what is it? You guys giving you the bird? I'm gonna be the bird that I give you when I. Kick your ass. <laughs> That's actually how it started. He, yeah. he actually flipped. He he was so angry, he flipped Hitchcock off. Yeah. He's like, here's your bird. <laughs> and now that's that now it's well, I, I I I'm just I'm in shock. I had no idea like who who thought they were gonna be that pissed off. Like I, I really hope I haven't upset their union. <laughs> and that's the thing, like you have a bunch of birds converging, like and a lot of these are trained birds, you know, like run by the you know, one animal trainer and a yeah. lot of, there was a lot of humane society stuff on set and whatnot to take care of these birds. Um which was like really, I mean, <coughs> uh, which was good and also interesting because that's when still like animal rights and movies were still yeah. not like a heavily influenced thing. Yeah, I think um, it's primarily because of just it's it 
it, it probably was a logistics thing for not just animal safety but also human safety because of the nature of what the birds are supposed yeah. to do in those scenes. Um, and, you know, like you have some birds are being held by their legs for certain shots. Some people are, you know, or some birds are, you know, kind of like have their beak shut or something like that. Or there's a limit where there's like a wire where they can't fly beyond a certain distance. Right. So it, it, it's an interesting wrangling on production scale. Right. So the birthday party ends, though. And we go back to the house, and then the attack becomes insular with a bunch of strawberry finches coming through the chimney. And yeah. this is the where the combination of actual birds on set uh, works for one or two shots but doesn't work for the entirety of it. And so the sodium process has to come in to lay in that effect of the birds swarming around them. Yeah. Um, uh, the bird attack subsides. Sheriff comes in and goes like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's possible. Like... Also, uh, remember how I told you this was also the movie that also brought in like weird logical issues that don't make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also brought in the dumb police. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you, I mean, if you listen to the podcast, you know I'm. A, I, we hate it whenever yeah. there's a horror movie that just says stupid cops. Yeah, like culmination. I mean, please being Halloween Five, where you have two of the wor- dorkiest yeah. cops imaginable. <laughs> like any Griffith show type of like cop, just like, well, I Rick, you know, I'm here for her to have a bird doing that. And you have uh, like a group of people all saying the same thing. Yeah. Like, well, maybe you're all on drugs. <laughs> saying it to like the one six year old. Actually, I lied. <laughs> you know what the culmination of point of that is? Tammy and the T Rex. <laughs> yeah, the T-Rex. <laughs> the cops it. and Tammy. I just saw it for the first time this week. Tammy and the T Rex has some of the most inept dumb but hilarious cops yeah. imaginable i mean i mean obviously for something like that like yeah it's more acceptable but when it's like uh oh uh, i'm trying to think of one um last house uh, on the left has some really dumb cops yeah that for the original one example. yeah yeah there there's some really stupid cops back then i mean one could argue that's how it was treated back then with cops you know in like the 70s and 80s of being like oh dim kids kind of like <laughs> I'm sure it's just some rough hells in. Yeah. You know, and they never took that shit serious. So one could argue that was just accurate for the time. But when they're just like overtly dumb (laughs) and they're just like, again, like a group of people all saying the same thing. And they're just like, oh, y'all having a joke. (laughs) Like, no, no, no. I'm in denial land. I'm in denial land. Like, Um, oh, thanks, Dick. (laughs) Yeah. My my favorite river is denial. So, you know, like, I I just, I don't understand. I think you're all just like huffing paint. (laughs) You all must be a bunch of Satanists or something. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm the only one who's saved, so, in this town. (laughs) So that may explain it. (laughs) I was baptized. I didn't get attacked by birds. This this is what happens when you follow Lutheran values. (laughs) 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 You, you, you and the Unitarians, you all got it fucking wrong. (laughs) I told you your pranks would catch back up to you. Just like, yeah. All right. But so the, the, the cop goes away, whatever. Nobody really believes him and whatnot. Uh, the, the, the next morning, um, uh, uh, Lydia goes to the faucet farm. Yeah. Um, and there she finds farmer faucet dead after having had his eyes pecked out. Another sequence that has been replicated to this day to a certain extent, whether it's the actual effect, uh, which his eyes being poked out is a combination of like makeup effect, but also matte um, right. painting with the with uh, with Albert Whitlock com- combining with the sodium process, right. where detail was added to make the uh, the the 
emptiness of the eyes right. more profound which is also like a very early like you know stage of like gore in horror movies too yeah. um because you know like again back to psycho he did he, he did a cutaway shot to basically show that she was being stabbed to death yeah but to show that like even just somebody's missing an eye like it's huge i mean it's uh, like uh, back then like can you imagine being <laughs> one of the people and just being like oh they're not going to show this scene and then like actually seeing that and you're like oh my god you don't know what i'm capable of motherfucker <laughs> Look at that shit. Like, Look at that shit. I'm gonna, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start from a wide. I'm well, going to cut to a medium and then cut to an extreme close-up. <laughs> and even just in horror, just like gory movies in general, like like whenever you watch a gory film, they'll always yeah. like go for a certain limb, and those limbs will decide the shot of how intense it is and if they're going to show the whole thing. Yeah. And the eyes are always one of the most sensitive places. I mean, if yeah. you look at the Green Inferno... You know, if you've ever seen that movie, there's a point where one of the guys gets his eyes, like, just scooped out yeah. while he's alive, and it shows the whole thing. Um, and, like, it's just so uncomfortable, and you're just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. I mean, shout out to Eli Roth. I love that dude. Oh, dude. But, yeah. like, the fact that something similar to that was shot way back, you know, in The Birds, I mean, obviously not as, you know, raw and intense, <laughs> but, like, still similar to that effect. You're just, the fact that they got away with it is it, just kind of it's funny you astounding. Bring, it's, it's funny you bring up Eli Roth in that respect, because there are, there, are there are featurettes in earlier DVD releases of Hitchcock films, I think the Psycho one's most profound, where you have a lot of different directors talking about what influences them and how those influences of Hitchcock can be seen in their films and Eli Roth yeah. has some of the most prominent examples of the of the most recent generation where like I mean Hostel follows a lot of the psycho mold yeah. and whatnot but you also just have you know the, the 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 pecking out of the eyes and other elements like that are profound in movies that expand to today yeah. um that pecking scene in particular or the the result of it I guess we should say because Far Farmer Fawcett's already had his attack yeah uh the one thought that I had um, was that the mummy, 1999's the mummy, when um, the Brandon Fraser was. Yeah, it's okay. funny because Stephen Summers manages to cram two Hitchcock references into one shot, because there's a shot where Rachel Wise goes up to yeah. one of the guys, and it's he's got his he's got his back to the camera, and it's kind of like the psycho shot with Mrs. going up to Mrs. Bates in the fruit cellar. Yeah. And then he turns and not only is he fucked up like Mrs. Bates is where he's dead, but he's got his eyes pecked out and his eye, and his tongue pucked out yeah. from the mummy. So he was able to combine a psycho and birds reference into one basic shot. Right. Um, the CGI doesn't really hold up with the mummy, but yeah. uh, some of it does. But that particular shot is just like, wow, it's interesting. That eyes being gouged out of you is still effective to this day. Which, I will say a side note, since we are able to give a lot of love to Keanu Reeves, uh -huh. I do think Brendan Fraser needs that same love. Absolutely. And I miss Brendan Fraser. I actually watched uh, Blast from the Past last night. And uh, I'll tell you, man, um, you know, watching that movie high is definitely weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, But it was great because it's, it's Brendan Fraser, man. And I just... Uh, you know, we demanded the success of Keanu Reeves to come back, and so now I think we need to do the same Brendan Fraser because he was he was un uh, you know he was terribly blacklisted from Hollywood. And he yeah, did not deserve it. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's you know 
he touches on a lot of stuff that we'll probably dive into, but there's a lot of like chicanery going on yeah. with his career. And, you know, I just miss Brandon. Fraser, I do man. too. I want, I want, I want something fun out of him again. Cause I think he can do it yeah. beautifully. Like, I mean, I don't really love tomb of the dragon emperor that much because, well, but if you take that aside, like mummy one and two are solid purely because of Brandon Fraser. Yeah. And then, you know, you, one of my favorite from him that no one ever talks about is bedazzled. Bedazzled's like, a good. It's a, it's a good remake too. Well, and normally, like I'm against rom coms, and I'm not a big fan of it. But the reason I love it is because Brandon Fraser um, was a good example of a non toxic male. Yeah, like he he was he like it show like it showed that it just you know him trying to be an overtly masculine dude was not his thing. Yeah, you know he he, he and that's was okay. Yeah, like, he still found the love of his life near at the end of the movie. Yeah, um, and I just thought that was awesome because Brendan Fraser is just he's a versatile actor. I love the shit out of that guy. He's a cool Canadian too. So yeah. there you know like like, already... he, like I can for forgive him for furry vengeance and Tomb of the Dragon. I, yeah, I dude I I'll watch him play around with a bunch of weird animals. Like it's <laughs> awesome, man. Like he's. You know, and he's the best part of Encino Man, and Encino Man's full yeah. of problems. <laughs> yeah, like Airheads, another great example. Yeah, uh, Brendan Fraser, man, like uh, the dude is a national treasure that we do not appreciate. Enough. Bring back Brendan. Bring back Brendan. Hashtag bring back. <laughs> hashtag BBB. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the uh, uh, the the attack in the house is over. The Fawcett Farm happens, um, and we go back, and you know Lydia's in a state of shock. Uh, things are not going well for anybody in this whole film. And uh, amidst that, um, Melody ends up connecting. El Melody ends up connecting with Lydia. Lydia explains a little bit more of her parenting history. Yeah. And where the issues from. It's not just how Mitch turns out, but also how Kathy reacts to her. You know, like Kathy's been chatty with Melanie the entire time because like it's like a big sister affectation or like a. Like a different, it's a different relationship. Like, and it's you know, you know the way you look up to some adults that aren't your parents or anything like that. Right. By the way, Kathy also says like, I know all about that democracy jazz in an earlier scene, and I'm just like, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> I love it when you can break down civics to just jazz. Democracy <laughs> like, jazz. Yeah, exactly. Name uh, my next ska band. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that that Watergate bebop man, that was terrible. <laughs> but. But so anyway, like, so we get a little bit more out of Lydia and then it kind of fully forms these female characters. Uh, and Melanie offers to pick up um, Kathy from the school. And arguably we get one of the most terrifying scenes in the film, um, obviously amidst a, a sea of other terrifying moments. Um, and this scene involves the schoolhouse and base a primarily silent sequence uh, from start to end. Um, where she goes to the school, she sees that the children are still learning and they're singing this, you know, they're, yeah. they're singing this nursery rhyme, kind of like this old, old song, which, which by the way, the screenwriter... Which isn't terrifying at all. Yeah, exactly. Well, it it's... Oh, God, it's terrible. It's, that's unsettling because it's also the only scene where you have any music in this movie. One could argue at that point uh, the birds are the hero saving, uh, destroying this cult village. Yeah. Town. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a Rissle de Rossity yeah. um, is the and what's funny is, is that Evan Hunter uh, put it in there, but there's not enough lyrics to fill the entire scene. So he wrote additional stanzas for oh, okay. the film. And in order for it to be used in the film, he had to join ASCAP. So until the day Evan Hunter uh, to the to the day when he was doing that documentary on the birds and eventually to his passing in 2005, he's still getting ASCAP royalties for for that one nursery rhyme in right. the birds. That's God. That, 
talk about a screenwriter who like cleaned up like yeah. <laughs> the royalty department. Uh, but that sequence kind of starts off. It, we we get to see Hitchcock build the tension. You see a shot of a crow on the jungle gym, and it cuts back to Melanie and she's smoking. And you 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 hold on the shot until it's almost unbearable, and then you cut away to a shot of a couple other birds flying, and then suddenly that entire jungle gym is covered. Yeah. With crows, um, who um, you know, by aviary standards are intelligent birds, and so it's easier to train them amongst all the other birds they were working with. Yeah, she goes into the schoolhouse, says like, "Don't go out the side door." You know, we got to do a fire drill. Um, which, by the way, if if there's only one logic issue or like whatever that I had with it, she, uh, Annie tells the kids to uh, exit in a quiet and orderly fashion to a certain point before to, before they start running. And yeah. it would be the hotel before they start running. The shot cuts to... The, it has them exiting the schoolhouse. Cuts back to the birds, and you have a couple beats. Yeah. And then you hear the starting of running, and then the birds starting to attack. They're not anywhere near anywhere other than the schoolhouse when they start running. Yeah, right. So the kids didn't listen <laughs> to the instructions. I mean... <laughs> I don't argument, care either, but... <laughs> argument's sake, if a shit ton of birds are going to, you know, attack oh, me, yeah. uh, that's the exact moment I would throw orderly fashion out the window. Yeah, it's just like, fuck animal. you, ma'am! <laughs> <laughs> I'm only five. I don't, I don't. <laughs> I'm still young. And also, keep in mind, these are also kids. They're unpredictable because... You know, they are not like other normal children. Like when when Annie tells them that uh, they have to leave school, they all say in unison, "Leave school!" <laughs> like, yeah, like oh, I mean, teacher tells me we gotta be like we're gonna leave school for the day, but won't tell me the reason. Be like, all I heard was leave school, and I'm totally down for this. Yeah. Like, like, bye, <laughs> so long, schoolhouse. But. Uh, they start running down, and it's a, it's a very highly technical scene with the birds attacking. has a horrifying moment with other Kathy's friends who is plummeted down to the ground, and she's being pecked at by the birds, and she yeah. yells out, Kathy, Kathy. Yeah. And it's unnerving. They get into the car. Um, they get, uh, they get uh, to safety. Uh, Annie is able to uh, take Kathy and Kathy's friend and try to get them to safety after the attack subsided. Tippy Hadron and um, uh, Rod Taylor go to the diner, and the diner is where a lot of... It's, it's a lot of exposition while not explaining anything. So it's just a conversation to kind of build up yeah. these, these attacks how it could be unrealistic and how it's just regardless of it being unrealistic, it's happening. You have a sea of characters amidst like uh, a terrified mother who's doesn't want her children to hear this conversation. Um, you have uh, a drunk in the corner going, it's the end of the world, which God bless, you know, any drunken Irishman in the background right. of a scene, just going like, fuck you. We're all going to die. <laughs> like, <laughs> and uh, I told you. Yeah. I told you. And then you have Mrs. Bundy, the uh, ornithologist uh, played by Ethel Griffiths, who really is like, she's kind of like the Quentin Tarantino of this movie where she just brings in her expertise out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, um, but she's also the one that like, you know, she she she's there to set up that she's wrong essentially because like everything she's saying while it sounds logical has gone against everything we've seen thus far so it's yeah. you know that's that thing of like we know more than some of the characters do which works in a dramatic and tension fueled way um 
it then leads to all-out chaos in the town. Yeah. We're going to talk about special effects shots and special effects filmmaking before CGI. The Birds is up there as like a peak of innovation. Yeah. These birds set gas stations on fire. <laughs> they scare the shit out of horses. And there's probably a... the most punk rock birds ever. Oh god, yeah, they're just like metal. It's <laughs> <laughs> like Motorhead playing in the background. Oh. I mean, before Motorhead was Motorhead. <laughs> it's the Universal Space. Somebody should remake. <laughs> Somebody should re-edit that scene and overlay Motorhead. <laughs> they're just like uh, you know, just like a, like an actual like few birds that are banned playing that song oh it's yeah like, it's the call of space <laughs> it's like it's the equivalent it's the bird equivalent of in mad max free road where you have that guy on the yeah, guitar on exactly. top of the car. <laughs> there's just like flames coming out of the guitar it's like nuts death to humanity they're just like doing you know double beats you know blast beats so it really it just becomes a whole metal music video. Oh yeah, exactly. No, no, Alma, Alma, trust me. I know that they're expecting the horror movie. What they're not going to expect is a rock musical. In the middle First of you had to make these knives. Now you're making these instruments. Now we're even not going to use these. Why do I keep coming back, H- Alfred? Hitch, I, uh, Hitch, why, why are you insisting on this? Trust me. <laughs> It's got to work. This is the weirdest tobacco I've ever had. It's making me think weird Al- things. Alma, Alma, this tobacco tastes just just lovely. Just it's fucking fantastic. lovely. Just, you know, I know I ate five meals earlier when I wasn't smoking this, but now I want ten more. <laughs> Alfred, I don't think you remembered that you ate one of the birds. <laughs> oh... Oh, poor fellow. That explains the feathers. That's gonna. That's gonna be. Um, he just <laughs> he like spits him out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> we gotta shut this production down for a couple of days and figure out what the fuck is going on. So you bring me on your show, man, and I bring it to the point where Alfred Hitchcock's eating his own, you know, birds. Trust me, I'm glad that we could get him to the insanity point because <laughs> so far he's been pretty calm with his explicitness. The birds is where he decides to say, "Fuck yeah. it." Yeah, the special effects, man. It's. Um, it's incredible and like that phone booth sequence is still under me it's that's the shot that yeah. got me to even watch the this movie because that uh the alfred hitchcock collection was advertised in the mummy vhs yeah and they showed that shot and that was the shot that stood out to me and that's why i was just like i want to watch this bird movie yeah <laughs> right um and it still works and it's we should talk about it at this point because it is a very poignant moment in this so yeah, this uh, is where I take issues with Hitchcock overall, man. Okay, so um, his possessive and obsessive nature over women. Yeah, well, especially it, Tippy. Yes, especially like, Tippy. Um, and if you and just I'll, I'll let oh, you. Oh, you no, go right ahead. Um, yeah, yeah. But like, even if you look at Tippy, like he kind of had this obsessive nature with a lot of people that had the same, or a lot of women that had the same features that Tippy had too. Yeah, blonde, blue eyed. You know, for the most yes, part. exactly. Grace Kelly being one where he. Uh, was it did not uh, put through the yeah. things that he put Tippy through. Uh, the bottom line is it's unacceptable behavior out of oh, yeah. uh, out of our subject for um, this entire series. Well, man, and if coming back to like how I said, like Kubrick and Hitchcock, yeah, uh, were similar in the ways they both also treated their actresses in the same way. Yeah, so, Kubrick and Shelley Duvall is yeah, a primary um, example. If you listen, into, if you watch or listen to any of the interviews that she. Poor Shelley Duvall, like she was so beautiful back in the day, and you can just see like everything that she went through has just taken a toll over her over the yes. years. 
um you know and she's so amazing of an actress and she if you see her talk about that movie you know she does not have it in any high regards like she hates it yeah like you, one could say that she despises it for the most part and tippy hendren the same thing with the birds yeah now um, tippy hendren's interviews for the birds that since since the making of that film and marnie um she is very uh she praises Hitchcock, but those interviews also tend to ignore probably other, ele- definitely other elements to this whole story. Real quick, I just, uh, mm-hmm. real quick about my uh, comment about Shelley Duvall. Yeah. I want to make a point that I'm not saying that Shelley Duvall is anything but beautiful. Like she's, I'm oh not yeah, no, she's yeah. not attractive. No, I was more so just uh, meaning just like you, the light that she once had. Yeah, that's, uh, it's it, the idea it, of you a... can see it's been a bit depleted. Um, but what you're talking about. Yeah, like in that scene, so she like she was all cut up, she was bleeding, like she had serious like injuries that required stitches. Because I mean, there was even a point where like he attached a bird to her face mm-hmm. um, to get that terror out of her, and it yeah. was literally clawing. Like the in the scenes in the movie, and it, it it's supposed to be portrayed as fake, but it's legit. Like it is a real scene where he attached a bird to her face. So like you know, coming back to also like when animal rights weren't really you know. <laughs> uh considered you know um i just you feel so sorry for her because it's that was that was definitely when uh hollywood was also and that not that it's not now yeah when it's definitely a boys club yeah and the bottom line is you're dealing with a subject that you know we've had a lot of issues come to light within the last two to three years um but these are eternal issues that have been happening in the history of hollywood and they're unacceptable under any circumstances and you know you know there's there's other people who make statements that these are all allegations and whatever but the bottom line is is that like there's more than enough evidence to suggest that alfred hitchcock yeah is more than guilty of these actions and and it's and you know and you know at the end of the day we are talking about the cinematic impact of alfred hitchcock but this is something that i'm not going to shy away from i mean when we get into marnie uh at a later episode uh the 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 division of art and real life becomes very messy yeah because the two are intertwining too uncomfortably um i mean and you know, there's other directors who are you know have been called out for this like bertolucci the director of last tango in paris you know like did similar pushing his actors to an edge point in very uncomfortable ways yeah and so and in, in, in inexcusable ways so when you watch the scene with tippy in the phone booth there's genuine terror once you know some of the stories um regardless of how they're presented yeah. just the bottom line is that, that there's an element of actual danger yeah. and, and, and an element that doesn't uh exist on the practical level in regards to like people use cgi for stuff like that now but whatnot but when well, you add this with the with the terror of somebody who's acting like hitchcock was acting it's it's unsettling well you know what's so shameful about it man is that in one of the smudges on the history of horror in general is that that kind of made it okay to do things with animals like that. Yeah. Um, in horror, at least, and some, and obviously some, some other bigger pictures, but like you know, Cannibal Holocaust, for example, um, whatever. You know, obviously the people didn't actually die. If you don't know that already, they're they were alive. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Matt, I saw but, the movie, but I they, they were not dead. <laughs> sadly, though. Um, you know, man, it's, you know, the yeah. turtles in that movie did, were actual turtles. Yeah. And they were killed on camera. Um, and so, but, you know, that was okay. Like, that was considered, like, I mean, obviously, 
you know, and I'm just speaking on a general, like, er, you know, there's obviously are people that are just like, oh, that's fucked up when that came out back then. Like, that's not okay. But because Alfred Hitchcock was able, you know, nobody stopped Alfred from attaching a bird to Tippi Hedren's face. Right. It kind of made it like, well, you know, if Alfred could do it, why can't I? Right. Kind of thing. And I'm not saying that was the, you know, general inspiration behind the turtle killings. Yeah. But it kind of set that precedent. Yeah, and it's and and again, this is this is a bad situation all around, but it is, and we need to address it because it's there. It's not. Th- I mean, there's no such thing as ignoring a white elephant in the room when it comes to f- when it comes to the behind the scenes stories in film. Right. You know, and if it comes up further in the conversation, we deal with it appropriately. Yeah. Back to the but back to the main plot of the film. Chaos has reigned. You know, yeah. horses yeah. are flying around uh there's a god's eye view of the birds going fuck you humanity and <laughs> you know and and that shot in particular was shot like the, it's a it's a um process shot where um all but a certain section is cut out yeah and they shot it at the parking lot in universal and they had to get it right the first time because it's ingrained in the negative and so that shot is composed of several different layers to create that effect um and um and it's 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 the it's the natural evolution of the special effects techniques that not they don't get their start in this but like are exemplified by stuff like the Invisible Man from 1933 with uh, Claude Rains yeah where you that's that's how we create an invisible effect that's able to carry out throughout an entire picture and so this is similar filmmaking technique that has evolved beyond that point thanks to people like Abai Works and the Disney Imagineer Works haha. Rent Disney Plus guys I don't fucking know uh, <laughs> I don't have it yet I haven't watched Mandalorian I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Um, so anyway, we're back to the, um, we're back to the diner. Um, we get back to the diner. They, um, have just endured this massive attack. Yeah. And, uh, the mother who was terrified of her children hearing, uh, all this scary stuff, uh, calls out the, what I would consider like one of the more traditional horror tropes in the film, which is this like, no, none of this happened until you showed up into town. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. The, the whole like, um, demonizing of the outsider kind of deal. Yeah, exactly. Like, that is huge. That is an appar- like, you see that theme take on so many different forms too. Um, whether it is something as big as like a guy from out of town coming in or even like somebody entering somebody's life and shit happening. So, uh, you know, for a good example is just, I mean, there's multiples of them, but like the, you know, the traditional one you would see is like some sort of supernatural being or force, mm-hmm. um, who was only rumored to exist is suddenly coming into existence and it's only happening because you know it started with this person yeah and then everybody starts to blame this person saying that they are involved somehow yeah and so as a viewer you look at that and you're like that's insane you know like (laughs) obviously they wouldn't do that but then if you take a second you go into the mindset of the person who's accusing them i mean you want to answer this for why your kid's now dead yeah and if you could bring it back to the one person who should also be dead but isn't you're going to kind of wonder why and you have something like Frankenstein, James Wells Frankenstein from 31 is like a very early example of that from the more pop culture, modern aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and David J. Skull, who is a wonderful writer. You should read the monster show. It's an amazing book about the early years of horror. Uh, he points out like it's, it's a traditional mob scene. And in this yeah. particular instance, it's a mob that's very isolated and condensed into this diner. And if you notice, like everybody in that shot is women. So again, it's another predominantly female driven moment um, with only Rod Taylor as Mitch in present in that yeah. moment as the male influence. And it kind of directs to like, you know, how does this affect 
not just Melanie, but but um, Mitch as well. So it's 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 covering a lot of different ground in a very fascinating way. So they leave the diner. They are backtracking past the school towards Annie's house, and they find Annie dead. Yeah. Um, they're being very quiet again. Like at this point, you know, all all sudden movements and motions of the humans in this film become very bird-like because they start acting the way some birds do around humans in order to avoid being startled or surprised or killed. So they find Annie dead. Um, Terrifying reaction from Tippy. And, you know, it's she's Annie's fucking dead. Like her, her, it's a weird shot. Her foot is caught in between like the slit of the stair of, of the step and the stairs. Yeah. So it's like she tripped and like fucking toppled over. Yeah. Um, and then you find Kathy in the house is that, and it's revealed by Kathy in a hysterical crying moment that, you know, Annie, um, we were taking back my friend and then the birds started coming and Annie pushed me into the house. And so that's true. So it was Annie sacrificed, um, herself to save Kathy. So they get back to yep, yep. the Brenner house and they start boarding up the windows and everything that where the b- birds could get in. Um, yeah, and, like setting up for like the final stand. Which like, it should be pointed out if we want to get back into the logic issues. Uh, when we get further into that scene, when they start attacking, it's 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 unclear as to whether or not the window that the birds are coming through is a place that they forgot to board up, or right. or the birds like just so strong at this point that they're bu- just pushing like through. Just like Manning it through the wall. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so I know the <laughs> knives didn't work. I know that the rock opera wasn't going to work either. But but but. I have this vision. Call me crazy, but a man made of liquid beverage pushing through a door. And I just, I mean, obviously we don't have the technology to make uh, a a, a Kool-Aid man. There was a guy who actually made his own fruit punch. And he's like, if only I could market this somehow. (laughs) This happens to be working on that crew. I know, property destruction. (laughs) He hears his pitch and he's just like, Alfred, that's a terrible idea. Write this down. (laughs) No, it will. It will not work, Al. Uh, uh, Hitch, it's not gonna work. H- Hitch, it's not gonna work. Right, this fucking shit Billions. Make, we're gonna make so much money, and we're gonna get made fun of by some guy on a from Rhode Island. And it's, <laughs> it's gonna be like a running gag on this long-running TV show that was once canceled. Um, but oh so, yeah, I like that. <gasps> That's the tagline. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's where it comes from Alfred Hitchcock was stoned and said oh yeah <laughs> um, so but regardless of the logic issue it's still a terrifying moment because everything's dropping into silence Yeah, and then suddenly the sound starts building up again we have that soundtrack that electronic soundtrack slowly building up to a huge insane attack where you know like the birds are coming through the windows he ties off the window and the shutter door with the with a lamp cord yeah uh and then he comes through the door where the doors where well, the birds and, are pecking through the door and, and the music is just like really important to the scene as well i mean um uh, you know always bringing it back to horror like music is always going to matter it's always going to set the mood for the type of scare that you're getting yeah you know and alfred hitchcock definitely set that standard of like you know the ear piercing type of music and you know just even even on a scientific point you know um our ears can only handle a certain amount of level yeah sound and if that just gets peaked really fast it'll just 
send a reaction to our brain and make us jump. That's yeah. why, you know, when you go to haunted houses, they slam doors and whatnot. Like, they do those loud noises because it makes – it tricks your brain. It's a natural chemical reaction. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, he – with, you know, I, 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 you know, psycho <laughs> yeah. and whatnot. I'm not going to do the whole high-pitched thing. I don't want to ruin everybody's ears. <laughs> no, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back to the scene you're talking about, like, the sound is yeah. important. Like, it's putting your body, like, on nerves. Like. Yeah. It's it's drawing, and, it's, and especially since this particular score is non-traditional and mainly an organic or, or a um an attempted at organic sound yeah. to birds and stuff. It's operating on the same level as music, where it has cues and moments to to accentuate itself. Um, and you have these birds coming through the door, which you know, like the way they're coming in. Like when I I've seen this film multiple times, and this is the first time last night rewatching it, where I was just going like, "Here's Johnny, here's Johnny, here's Johnny," because yeah. they keep coming through, just like Jack Nicholson. So right, I'm just imagining right. a bunch of tiny Jack Nicholson birds coming through the fucking door. <laughs> well, and this is that like point where it's like you got to kind of like leave the logic behind because. Mm-hmm. It, the thing is, we're watching a movie. Yeah, we're watching exactly. a fictional movie where uh, it's supposed to be tangible. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm sure there's a type of bird that can, like, do that, you know, just, bar- like, barrel through. And, and I guess, you know, you could even argue uh, attacking the same weak spot over and over eventually would give way. But, uh, I, I mean, yeah. at, at some point, you just got to accept that this is the movie that we're watching. Exactly. And it, and, and, and I, I find no issue with it logic-wise. I mean, like, right. we're already seeing birds attack shit and, you know, setting fire to gas stations. At this point, I'm believing these birds can do anything, yeah. which makes the logic even more sound when um, that attack subsides. Melanie goes up the stairs um, when all the lights have been gone out and goes up toward the attic to hear what the fluttering is all about. And the birds have gotten through the roof and um, they that's how they have been able to infiltrate the top of the house. Yeah. Um, Now, should point out this scene that where she's in the top attic um, is another scene where Tippi Hedren suffers abuse at the hands of Hitchcock's technique, but also just his actions, period. Um, She was told mechanical birds would be of use. Um, and th- this is the sorry because I did jump ahead a little earlier. No, right, go right ahead. Criticism, yeah. but this is the exact scene I was talking about. Yeah, and and this is the moment where, you know, she's told like the day of the filming that it's you know they've got to use live birds because the mechanical birds won't work. But it's already been constructed that there's guidelines and limits for where the birds can go, like yeah. different wiring fences. So obviously this was already in Hitchcock's head, um, and it comes into the di- into the discussion of what is an appropriate behavior from a director to get the emotion out of their actors? And when is it just straight up abuse? Yeah. And And, you know, we've even talked about this too on our subject of snuff films, mm -hmm. uh, just because, you know, snuff films are core uh, are you know, if you're not a horror veteran and, or you're even a horror fan in any way, like snuff films do get heavily attached to horror in general. Yeah. Um, And we, you know, we talked about it in order to try to, you know, separate it and, you know, show where that line is. But, you know, they have to have these talks. Um, now, like, modern film, like, they, you know, definitely, like, there's there's rights you have to be aware of. You yeah. know, there's boundaries you have to be aware of. Um, you know, but back then, it was just such a wild west of it that you could, you know, as it happened, lie about. Yeah, know, different. Or, and I guess maybe I'm using lie from my own opinion. Um, lie about mechanical birds being used. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, that's And that's, again, like... 
you know, it's a situation that's terrifying. And this is a, a sequence that took five days to shoot. So there's yeah. five days of stuff. Now, from the technical level, five days makes sense. But it's still a situation where that's five days of torture being yeah. inflicted upon her. And um, <clears throat> there's a story in the documentary that's attached to the Blu-ray um, that Cary Grant came to visit the set and saw what Tippy was enduring and said, I think you're the bravest lady I know. So there's another example of Cary Grant being a badass. But, yeah. Know, like, there's Could like, you do a little more about that, Cary? <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no. And it's not Cary Grant's fault. I'm not going to no, put Cary Grant under any bus. Yeah, no, I, I totally get But at the same time, you know, again, you know, this is five days that she has to endure this shit. Um, regardless of that, I mean, the sequence is effective, obviously, for what it's trying to do. Yeah. And it's, it's another example um, you know, we're, I mean, we're we're talking about the 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 bluntness of it. Five days of filming, it rel it it dives back into the obsessive nature of Hitchcock and the meticulous detail. Um, the sa- the shower sequence in Psycho takes about as long to make because of all the different angles they were doing. Yeah. Um, and then it is edited together in that uh, montage way uh, to suggest a lot of different angles of stuff happening with the birds. Because even with the birds as in control that they can be with a trainer, you know, it's still scattered. And yeah. obviously they're to the point where the birds have to be, you know, sodium processed into the film. Well, and you still see that used a lot in a lot of like mainstay like horror. Um, today, even you'll see it in modern age. But one example that's like perfect for it is the original Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. Whereas the stigma to that is that that film is really gory. It's not. There's blood. <laughs> yeah. But you don't see anything. Yeah. But because it does a lot of that type of uh, scene cuts that you're talking about you get that general feel because your imagination takes on, you know, just goes to a different level. And it's just like, it was like, it's, it's really bad. And it's just, well, no, yeah, no, the seed was planted there, you know, and this comes back all to, you know, the first bird attack, the seed being planted early on in the film and then it being watered throughout the way as it escalates. Exactly. And and Toby Hooper does that a little bit, like sprinkles in some psycho and the birds to twist or thematicus with that. Like, I mean, psycho, especially because, the editing of Psycho with the stabbing sequences that it has very much falls in line with what they do in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and also in 1978's John Carpenter's Halloween. Yeah. Um, I mean, Black Christmas to an extent. I think Black Christmas is more explicit than it gets credit for. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it's, but it's also a little bit more brutal and ambiguous. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, we get that scene. She she comes back down. She She gets saved by Mitch. She's brought down, and you know they give her brandy to wake up and try to get anesthetic and whatnot. And she's catatonic, and which, by the way, shows you know product of its time using brandy to wake up someone. <laughs> you know, you, you don't it's, really. Uh... I mean, like, <laughs> you know, back when <laughs> people were putting whiskey on their kids' teeth and yeah. their gums. I mean, <laughs> it's one of my favorite moments. And there will be blood. Is in a modern day movie. You just watch Daniel Day Lewis feeding whiskey to a child. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, of course Daniel Day Lewis would do that. That's like a normal Sunday for him. <laughs> While he cobbles shoes and sews tresses. <laughs> There's no mess with DDL. DDL does what he wants. <laughs> if I'm going to give your children whiskey, I'm going to give them whiskey. <laughs> this is a brandy set and a brandy set only. <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis would have pissed off Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. He hated a- he hated method actors. He had a problem with Montgomery oh, yeah. Clift, obviously, on the Saturday yeah. I confess. I just imagine Daniel Day Lewis just pushing like <laughs> just desserts of treatment on Alfred Hitchcock for all the bullshit he put off. You know, <laughs> Daniel yeah. Day Lewis just not suffering Hitchcock right. lightly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so you know that the uh, 
the the decision is made by Mitch and Lydia to um and Lydia is more apprehensive of this to escape via car um to drive to San Francisco. And what I think is one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, and it's a scene that's been aped in other pop pieces of pop culture, is Rod Taylor going outside to get that car, coming back in and getting Melanie and the whole family into the car. It's the direct uh, final evolution where man have become birds and birds have become the aggressor. Yeah, uh, where where it's finally shifted. Yeah, he's as he has to be as careful as a bird because if he suddenly does anything, they're going to attack. Even when he does minor things that could be transgressions, the birds immediately respond. Well, you know what's so cool about the scene, like because like, and it's also just another monumental scene. Like even the Simpsons like did an honor to it. With one of the treehouse of horrors, <laughs> yeah. with where the dolphins yeah. instead attack, and it's not the birds. Yeah, and so they're all walking out of the courthouse, and it's just like a mob of dolphins, <laughs> and they have to be really careful with what they do, and yeah. like they try to push, you know, the the character's buttons by like well, you know, Lisa trying to like help one of the baby dolphins get like uh, soda rings off of its snout, and it just bites her, and she's like, "You son of a!" <laughs> and just like has to restrain herself because I was gonna say, there's another Simpsons episode that does that does this. It's not a treehouse one. It's um when Maggie goes to the daycare and she's trying to get her pacifier back, and the majority yep. of it is a yeah. great escape montage. Yeah. But by the end of it, all the babies have their fucking pacifiers, yeah. and, and much like the soundtrack <laughs> for this, the whole scene is just pacifiers going... Yeah, and it, it just like try to be very careful with like Homer trying to like <laughs> okay Maggie, let's go home. Like try to be just moving very slow. I'm gonna find the clip and I'm gonna play it in the episode. But you see that like it's such a small little thing that you don't give a second thought to, but it's played out in so many horror films. I mean, probably one uh, Tremors too. Tremors in the yeah. scene where you know he has to go into that whole warehouse covered in nitrogen um and just like i think it's nitrogen but like he and you know like there's all like the walking tremors because you know he has to move not only very closely but quickly for the nitrogen to last because they see body heat and the nitrogen is like covering his body heat yeah but he also can't make any loud noises yeah and so like you see that scene even in aliens with the eggs like it's the same thing yeah like it's just such a like weird small thing that we that we don't realize you know um got a big mainstay in like the birds yeah and it's and actually the tremors i the tremors uh illusion i think is is fascinating too and actually if you there's another documentary on the blu-ray where uh ron underwood director of first tremors is he talks about the influence that the birds has on some yeah. like tremors. And so like, you know, obviously these, these are things that have like, well, I mean, even, sorry, I'm in, no, 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 you're fine. Well, I mean, shit, like even like, even on a more like bigger scale, not as many, but one big fucking terrifying thing, the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. Yeah. Although that wouldn't have, like they can still see, they'll still see you. Like, yeah. But the whole idea of like, if we don't move, it won't notice us <laughs> kind of like it's still there. Like that, yeah. the whole mentality of like, if we, if we're really careful around these birds, they won't notice us. Maybe that's where they got the idea that the, the T-Rex wouldn't notice them if they didn't move. <laughs> what if, birds. what if, what if the birds are aided by one of their ancestral ally yeah. called the T-Rex? Yeah. But anyway, he gets the car, he turns on the radio, the radio yeah. further, uh, 
solidifies the fact that there's no explanation for what's going on, no tangible explanation. It's right. just happening, uh, and it seems like it's not relegated to Bodega Bay, but that it is the central anarchy of these birds yeah. is happening in uh, Bodega Bay, and there's scattered attacks elsewhere. Yeah. So it could be spreading. It may not be spreading. It's kind of – and it, it also is like a precursor to an extent of what George Romero does with Night of the Living Dead, right. how he uses media as the communication right. tool for what's right. going on outside of that farmhouse. So Rod Taylor gets Melanie with Lydia, and they go out, and it's one of the greatest things about um, Tippi Hedren's performance combined with Hitchcock's direction. Um, is that when she's being let out, she's mostly silent, but when she sees those birds and reacts to their sound, she goes, no, no. And if you listen to the Hitchcock Truffaut interview, he explains that the way he asked Hedren to, to have that reaction, which I imagine, unfortunately, is also a combination of her exhaustion from yeah. what she endured, but the direction that was given was, I want you to reject the idea of going to those, going near those birds again, like a, like a child would. Yeah, and it's a very fascinating piece of direction and delivery that I think is it's one of the most effective people like moments of a person saying no, no, no. Like it's she is genuinely terrified that she will go through what she went through in the attic again. Yeah, and now see, obviously that comes with the double edged sword of the baggage that we've been discussing. Right, is still a very effective scene. I don't. I obviously it's not worth the abuse that she endured. I mean, I think it's admirable that she still gives it praise. Yeah, and she still owns up to it because. One could see it as her being brainwashed or still being a victim of the abuse. And that is a valid statement. But I also think it's also just kind of like a measure of her professionalism mm -hmm. and just how much of a badass she is. Because she has every right to demonize that whole movie. Yeah. But the fact that she still is like, you know, like this was a huge mainstay in my art form, my personal career, despite what I went through and like still owns it. Like she's not owning it to, you know praise alfred she's owning it to because she's proud of it because of what she did yeah and so like i think that's what makes it a little more kind of palpable to still watch it and still yeah. go through it knowing that she's owning it for her own sake exactly and you know and it we get her in the car she lies in lydia's lap yeah says a mother relationship she's never had because it should be noted like she she say, states early on in the film she her mother ran out on her so it was just her and her father so and it and it, again it 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 turns turns the head on what we consider a female dynamic of a character and a, yeah. from an emotional standpoint. It's why Evan Hunter is one of the more innovative writers for Hitchcock to an extent. Well, and the thing is, man, with that scene alone, I mean, you know, it, it's it not only is it doing what you just already said, but it's also just showing that you know a hero can have multiple angles. It doesn't have to be a strict, you know one type you know it doesn't have to go one direction with it you know and you and you see this theme carried out with like even i'm gonna always i always go back to it because it's just such a great example is aliens mm -hmm. um you know with sigourney weaver you know looking out for the little girl yeah um you know i mean probably the favorite line is get away from her you bitch <laughs> like yep. like it's not her kid but she's still and it's you could argue that it's like a maternal instinct kind of kicking in and, and you know that'd be fair too and it's a culmination of her terror from not just this film that right. she's experiencing but also the previous alien film where she's you know left alone on that frame, yeah you know but i think the biggest compliment we need to give to it is that it's just showing that we have a hero that is a decent person yeah overall you know whether it's a guy or a girl in this case you know, that the fact that they're looking at the, the child is always a metaphor for innocence and purity. 
And so she's still taking care of that. You know, she's watching out for that to make sure that it's not the last little depleted thing. I mean, you see that even a little kind of like off the subject, but still relatable is, um, Oh, what what's that? I, I just had it on my head. It was the movie where it's like the last kid of the, in the entire world. Um, nobody like no one can reproduce anymore. It's thought that children of men, it, children of men. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Like yeah. kind of like you see that as the main theme throughout all of children of men yeah. where somebody's taking care of a kid. Yeah. You know, and, and which is not just a kid, but like a hope, purity, innocence. Yeah. So, on and so forth. Very much. So. And you see. And you and I and I firmly believe you that kind of started with the birds with what we're talking about here at this ending scene. Yeah. Is it the only example? Not at all. But it's, it's a great it's, example. It's a primary starter, and especially towards that apocalyptic vision, mm-hmm. because we're left with a final shot of them driving off uh, past past the house into yep. their attempt to get to San Francisco. The birds have won. Um, before we discuss the, the the thematic impact of that moment, it's poignant to note uh, that final shot is composed of 32 isolated shots. Um, all layered and matted together uh, amidst Albert Whitlock's matte paintings. Yeah. Um, it's 32 different pieces of film for one moment. And it was the, and for, by record, it was the most difficult thing Hitchcock had to film on that film, let alone in his entire career because of how technical it was and how specific it was. Yeah. And, there is other endings to the film. Evan Hunter specifically said that there was an, the ending where you had them driving through the town and you see the destruction so that it's not just isolated to them, but it's it's spreading everywhere. Yeah. And then there's a big highway or um, the Pacific Coast Highway chase scene with the birds uh, eventually poking their way through the top of a convertible uh, of the convertible that Melanie came in um, and then them getting to safety. Uh, another uh, ending that Hitchcock joked about with an interview with Peter Bogdanovich was that they get to the Golden Gate Bridge and it's just littered with birds, yeah. which would have been hilarious. Like if you were able to accomplish that with Whitlock's paintings combined with the technical feat, it would have been on the same epic scale as the end of Planet of the Apes when you have that yeah. the Statue of Liberty. Um, obviously it does not happen. And, you know, you can hear in the interview Bogdanovich and Hitchcock laughing about like, wouldn't that have been fucked up? Like, (laughs) (laughs) what if their entire Golden Gate Bridge? Um, But the ending leaves us on one of the most ambiguous notes of Hitchcock's career and undeniably furthers the notion that ambiguity in the ending is a mainstream concept that can work. Obviously, the Coen brothers are very, very fucking good at that. Yeah. Um, and uh, amongst other directors, but uh, the original intent was to not even have the uh, studio logo at the end. He wanted it to end with just that sound kind of fading out with no indication of a studio logo or an ending. Universal insisted on putting a universal release at the end of it, and so that's why it's done. There's an argument to be made if you just fade it to black and you still have that soundtrack going on mm-hmm. as people are leaving the theater it would be very, very ballsy. Yeah. Yeah, and it's something that I think mainstream audiences would have been fucked up with a little bit, but uh, this is a time also where you you are distinguishing this as a movie, and thus that process becomes full. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So The Birds uh, is released on March 28, 1963, uh, on a budget of $3.3 million, one of the most ambitious films Hitchcock's had to do to this date. Um, it makes $11.4 million at the box office. Um, uh, the criticism of, of the film 
is it, the, the New York Times reviewer Bosley Crowther, who I have a mixed relationship with when it comes to reading his material because he's, if you read his history, it's interesting because he's he's all he was he's an interesting cat. Yeah. Um, but he was positive with it and said it was a horror film that should raise the hackles on the most courageous and put goose pimples on the toughest hide. And I absolutely agree with that. Um, uh, not everybody was as enthused with it, but regardless, the movie made a lot of money and it was um, not, it was, uh, it was close to on par with the success of psycho in terms of how it uh, transcended. But it also was a film that unlike psycho was not as powerful with its reception to the audience. And it was actually a film that Europe embraced a little bit more than uh, America did to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, What's interesting is that much like the trailer for Psycho, Hitchcock continues his uh, penchant for being a cheeky fucker uh, by making a trailer that I think even with the grandiosity that is the Psycho trailer, uh, the Birds trailer takes it up a step. Um, And I'm going to put the trailer in here right now so that you can all hear uh, what what I'm talking about. How do you do? My name is Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about my forthcoming lecture. It is about the birds and their age-long relationship with man. It will be seen in theaters like this across the country. In my lecture, I hope to make you all aware of our good friends, the birds. Theirs is a noble history, and through it all, man has played a conspicuous part. This cave drawing is one of man's earliest sketches of his feathered friend. One can see at once the loving care with which the artist depicted his subject. The story of man and his friends, the birds, is filled with many fine examples of ways in which these noble creatures have added to the beauty of the world. Take this plumed hat from the period of Charles I. How proud the birds must have been to have their feathers plucked out to brighten man's drab life. Here we have a later model a refinement of the first. Here man, or rather woman, thought enough of the birds to have an entire one as a decoration. It's quite dead, of course. Naturally, the egg plays a very prominent part in my lecture. Not a word about which came first, however. I don't believe in dealing with controversial matters. Thousands of years ago, man was satisfied merely to steal an egg from a nest and use it for food. Now he has perfected this process by imprisoning each hen in a separate cage and by scientifically manipulating the lights so that she doesn't fall into the rut of the old 24-hour day. Thus he can induce the bird to reach fantastic heights of egg production. Originally, there were many varieties of birds on Earth. Some have become extinct. The great auk, the passenger pigeon, and the famous dodo bird have all disappeared. Actually, they didn't exactly disappear. They were simply killed off. But of course, this is nature's way. Man merely hurries the process along whenever he can be of help. Man and birds have been responsible for a great many advances in our civilization. For example, the bird was the inspiration for the invention of gunpowder, and it was his speed that brought about the development 
of the shotgun. But man has not been unmindful of his debt to the bird. We have honored our feathered friends in many ways. We cage birds and show them off proudly in most of our zoos. And the turkey is traditionally our guest of honor at Thanksgiving. I suspect you never realize that if it weren't for birds, even some of our pastimes would suffer noticeably. Duck hunting, for example. Granted, bagging a fellow hunter can be diverting, but the supply is rather limited. I hope you don't mind if I have something to eat, but I'm rushed today. Planning the lecture has been most educational for me. I've begun to feel very close to the birds and have developed a real sympathy for our little... What was I saying? Oh, yes, I've come to feel very close to the birds and have come to realize how they feel when... I don't think I'll eat just now. Hardly proper with all of you here. Surely the birds appreciate all we've done for them. Don't you? Beautiful cage, fresh water, no other birds to bother you, none of that blinding sunlight. Oh! Now, why would he do that? Most peculiar. What on earth? So the trailer, for those of you who've just heard it, is Hitchcock giving a lecture on birds and within the process of it proving the point that humanity's been terrible to birds. Yeah. Whether it's him eating chicken or showing the plumage um, uh, of a yeah. feather on a hat and just being very coy and just, you know, whatever. And then it has that shot of Tippi Hedren coming in, slamming the door behind her and going, they're coming, they're coming. And then it cuts to that montage of the birds opening credit sequence. Yeah. It's another great marketing tactic by Hitchcock to really, without showing footage from the film, give you an idea of what you might be in for. Um, and it's, it is a testament to his ability to market not just himself, but also his product. Um, obviously, the, the TV show practically sells itself on the concept of an opening monologue where he's just like, and tonight's fucking story. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> Here's a joke, and now here's my uh, here's this short film that somebody else made. <laughs> but you know, um, so um, but the film is uh, but the film is released one night. Um, the film right after this is Marnie. Um, we will talk about it on another episode. But that's where things get a lot worse for uh, Hitchcock's career and also uh, his legacy. Um, yeah. But um, and you know the only way he bounces back is in the early seventies with frenzy and then kind of leaves on a middling note with family plot. Family plot's a good movie, but it's not up to the same level. Yeah. Um, so 
the birds obviously inspires a lot throughout pop culture, throughout horror history, throughout everything uh, that we consider when we consider nature attacking humanity. Um, you know, I, we brought up Birdemic earlier, and I'll say, you know, obviously it's in the pantheon of a midnight movie like The Room or yeah, um, uh, uh, Fateful Findings and stuff like that. But it oh, ult yeah. ultimately, Birdemic, when you watch it, um, it's it's problem on a technical level is obviously it's using very very crappy bird effects that doesn't under, that don't understand foreground and background uh, interaction with each other. It's yeah. very much just pasted on there. Uh, but it's interesting that this concept of birds and nature attacking hum uh, humanity and whatnot it's still a poignant theme that carries throughout, and it's becoming even more prescient with you know recent discussions about you know where global warming is at and how our planet's fucked but yeah. um and so it's a concept that is carried on through time there was a sequel to the birds <laughs> uh called the birds Two: lands End. you know i wish it was called the flapping <laughs> would have been great uh the birds Two: lands End. it was released in 1994 as a television sequel uh directed by rick halloween 2 and halloween resurrection rosenthal um uh movie was so uh terrible that he went under the name Alan Smithy for this which is a very <laughs> common thing for people to do when they need to be um uh disassociated from yeah. it um uh Tippi Hedren does return but she returns as a character named Helen that has nothing to do with the previous film yeah uh and uh it's uh yeah, it's. I have not seen it. I, this is something I should have watched in preparation, just to be like, oh boy, what the hell is this? Um, but I, I'll tell you what, uh, for the listening audience, I will watch it at some point and uh, give you a little mini episode where I talk about how this is, this is all a terrible idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, at the end of the day, I think the birds. You know, it's funny because we go back to Robert Boyle talking about this as a mood piece, and regardless of the narrative structure of the birds, it's still a mood piece really is still a mood piece. Yeah. It relies on the atmosphere, mm -hmm. um, especially throughout the entirety of it. So, um, you know, um, we're about to the wrap-up point here, but is there anything you wanted to bring up about the legacy of the birds and just where it stands to this day in the horror pantheon? I mean, I would definitely say that if, whether you are a veteran or you're new to the horror genre, in general, if you've ever if you ever had the general inquiry of like why it's why films are the way they are, horror films have the same themes or you know kind of are all ride within the same context in a way. Um, the birds is just kind of a must place must have to start to watch. And when you watch the birds, you get an idea of where this all started, where everything that we see in horror now started. And, and fact of the matter is, um, with all the controversies behind it. And I already said it, you know, Tippi Hendren didn't already own it. She owns it, uh, which makes me okay watching the film. Um, definitely give it a shot, man. I mean, I know the biggest thing that kind of like push, pushes people off about it is that it's an old film. And so that has like a boring stigma to it. Um, but if <laughs> Those you, morons now. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can look past that, man, like it's it, – Birds is a great film. Like, yeah. Without a doubt. It's, it's still – a great mainstay in just film and horror in general. And really, if you wanted to know where all of our creature features and everything in horror comes from, birds is a great place to start. Yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah, man, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably like the most bittersweet legendary film of all time. I, I agree. I'm in the place of like, you know, with, with regards to the production history, the birds is still a movie that can be watched, um, 
isolated from that merit while not ignoring yeah. it. Um, it's similar to how I feel about Grindhouse these days, because for all I love about Grindhouse, I also understand what Rose McGowan went through. Um, not to mention anybody else that could have been possibly hurt or damaged from that film. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 and it's strewn about the legacy of the Miramax and Weinstein company is just like, Oh, for all the great films that they made, you have to understand that yep. nearly every one of them is tainted in some form or fashion by something that could be directly related to that production history. So, yeah, I mean, you can still enjoy something while ignoring the bad things behind it, if that makes sense. And it looks like a really kind of hard statement to make. But I guess I would more so mean like just the birds in this example, just because that's a whole conversation in itself. Um, is watch it at the very least watch it for Tippy. I agree. Like, I mean Hitchcock's style is all over this film, and it's there's an appreciation you can have for it. But it is, I think it's it's important to watch it for what Tippy is able to contribute, yeah. not just to that film, but also to the legacy of horror. Because yeah. ultimately, like you know, we 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 give praise proper praise to Janet Lee for being like the innovative scream queen uh, oh, yeah. of the of the early sixties and the granddaddy of slasher films. Oh yeah, for but sure. the bottom line is that Tippi Hedren is is one of the forefront of like a strong character that you know persists throughout the majority yeah. of that film up until maybe like the last five minutes of the movie she, when she, she showed that a, a woman doesn't have to be completely helpless in a horror film yeah in order to be likable yeah um you know and, and like now that sounds like so alien to say that you know 2020 <laughs> but back then like you know it it was it was revolutionary you yeah didn't, you didn't really see that shit yeah and it's not overt on its face like you have to dig deep with the birds to understand what the strength can be while also understanding of where we've come since then. Um, yeah. You know, I, I do think like, I mean, obviously without Janet Lee, you don't have Jamie Lee Curtis yeah, for biological reasons, but <laughs> <laughs> if you, huh. uh, but um, if you look at it though, uh, the ability for Jamie Lee Curtis to be able to do something like H2O or even hollow green yeah. uh, is a situation that comes from somebody like to Hedren where there's agency to the character in a horror movie um regardless if it's a stepping stone of that nature it's still there so, yeah um matt i want to thank you for coming down and talking talking about the birds yeah, um, thanks man yeah flip flapping our wings about the birds <laughs> the you flapping. know what if i made a what if i made a pun would i would <laughs> i love stoned hitchcock it's lovely um but um, where can people find uh, Punk Rock Horror Podcast and all your work? Oh, man. we're So we're all over the place. The only place we're not on right now is iHeart. But um, we're uh, purely just because I don't really give a shit to get on iHeart at the moment. <laughs> like, if I'm going to be brutal. Like, it's kind honest, of an afterthought for us, too. <laughs> like, like, no offense, like iHeart and whatnot. But, like, I just, I just don't. We'll eventually get on there. It just, it's not at the biggest priority. But you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, uh, Player FM, Stitcher, on our website, www.punkrockhorrorpodcast.com. Um, you know, we also have a YouTube. We're, out, we're now getting into video. Um, it is definitely a huge undertaking for us because we've never done video before. So uh, we're recording this coming weekend, which is, by the time you, you guys listen to this would be the 19th. Um, oh, we, yeah. No, I mean, we've got a bit of a delay and whatnot, but like, yeah, yeah I can um, I can uh, work work with that. But like, uh, but no worries, man. Uh, yeah, we're uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com yes. slash punk podcast. Um, please consider going over there. We have a lot of tiers with great rewards. Um yeah, man, we're all over the place. You know, we have Facebook, Facebook uh, slash Punk Rock Horror Podcast, Twitter at official PRHP, and our Instagram, Punk Rock Horror Podcast. 
Um, we're very we're really good on all those. We like to talk to all of our listeners about you, horror. You are great with interacting. Thank you. Like I, I do you. appreciate how great you are with interacting. It's it's um it's always tough, obviously, with you know schedules being what they are for any podcaster to interact. But you guys do a very good Thank job. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Doing that. Um, yeah, man. Um. But yeah, so check us out, you know, give us likes and follows. And if you like what we like, what you hear, please consider leaving us a five star review on iTunes. We definitely want to stand out more. We're uh, um, this year being about technically our third year since publish. Um, we're definitely being more focused on making a bigger name for ourselves and also just connecting with the horror scene here in uh, Colorado overall. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that goes is a big, huge thanks to my co-host Cody um, and also our new crew that we have um in the entirety of just everyone working on this you know prhp has become this bigger thing than we thought it was going to be and it continues to get bigger it's kind of overwhelming but we're (laughs) don't get me wrong we're completely humbled and grateful for everybody's support it means a lot to us and so and again thank you for bringing me on here man no i'm Um, i'm humbled that i could get you on here you know like that that's you know the mentality of family was just just doing it and seeing what happened this has been a big experiment that's why there's no structure to it yet Uh, it's mainly because it's kind of hard to schedule a Hitchcock podcast by going through each film individually. Yeah. And, 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 and that's like, it was a motivating factor, but also it's just like, you know, like let's mix it up and like create some variety, but it all starts with, you know, just trying an idea and see what's happening. Like the reception that we've had for the podcast has been shocking to say the least. So, you know, like, I mean, when having people like you come on board to talk about, a level of expert. What do you mean, you people? <laughs> what do you? Oh. <laughs> what if it got very weird at the end? <laughs> Alma, Alma, I'm going to be a podcaster. Fuck the movies. Fuck the movies. Um, my Hitchcock is starting to turn into a Patrick Stewart. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, uh, it's 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 nice to have people come on with an expertise level to talk about movies like this. I mean, obviously, like I, I, all the guests that I've had have an expertise in that in their right. in their in individual realms and. What I like about what you've done is we we've, we've managed to we've managed to talk about a subject that's needed to be discussed on this show, but also managed to dissect this film in a proper manner. So yeah. I do thank you for thank you. coming aboard thank and bringing you. that punk rock horror podcast vibe into here to really kind of dissect this. Thank you. Yeah, and if you never heard our show before, uh, what we talk is if it's okay if I kind of explain. Ab- absolutely. So uh, what we what we do is we started the show to uh, focus on. The movies that we love, the horror movies that we love, which has mostly been B and indie horror films. Mm-hmm. And what started with us just wanting to talk about horror and just review these movies became a platform, a spotlight for indie creators and indie horror creators. Yeah. And so every other week we come out with two episodes where we talk about either a serial killer or just a subgenre in the in the horror genre. And we talk about the history behind it, why I love it. We'll sometimes bring on guests. And then on that following Friday, we will always review two movies that we feel that were either horribly underappreciated or overlooked and are related to that theme and deserve a lot of love. So kind of what you already mentioned with Ted Bundy, our most recent one is we talked about the history of Ted Bundy, how you know he came to be, how he died. Um, and then we reviewed two movies about him that we feel kind of really did a good job kind of summarizing everything about which those are done, which those are great episodes. And by the way, and they're the, when, when, when Matt and Cody talk about the two films side by side, it becomes a very fascinating dissection and discussion. Yeah. One that has definitely motivated me in regards to, um, uh, uh, uh upcoming episodes. Uh, one of which, uh, not, ne- not next episode, but the f- episode after that, 
you know, we're going to be talking about the man who knew too much back to back. I mean, like, and obviously it's not horror, but like, you know, oh, no, it, it counts side by siding those two comparisons, especially like the Michael Hendicke episode was or with the funny games episode was a very big breakthrough yes. for me of how to, how to jump into that logic. So, yeah, that one was, uh, I, we were, I was really happy to do that one. I'm really glad Cody did the movie, uh, funny games too. I'm glad he did his <laughs> review on that. Um, that, that movie overall, like just funny games in itself is just a really good movie. Um, like I said, there's only one scene in the remake that that just really just kind of bugs me. I know, just because it's such a long. I get why it's there. I totally get it, but it's just such a long scene. Don't don't spoil it. Make people I will, watch. I will, hey, make I people will. watch that damn movie. <laughs> but you'll know it when you see it. Feel free to fast forward a little. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you again, Matt, for coming on. Um, I appreciate you sitting down and chatting with us. Thank you, man. Um, you can uh, listen to the Shamley Silhouette on RealNerdsPodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at the Shamley Silhouette. Um, we uh, drop episodes every two weeks. At this point, we're getting back into the mode, so be patient if we maybe skip a week, just trying to make sure we get this series finished correctly. Right. Um, uh, you can also uh, look out for articles are coming back to the website. Uh, there's been a backup of those. They will be coming out back to the website. Um, on the next episode, we will have the return of our first-ever guest, uh, we may talk about something very simple. Or we may talk about something very important. important. So stay tuned for that. But until uh, that happens, uh, this has been the Shamley Silhouette. And also, man, real quick, I just want to say yeah. one more time, shout out to you and Real Nerds and everything you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm not going to, you know, I know you've had a lot of like personal stuff that you've gone through and that you come back from. Yeah. And I just want you to know, man, I think it's really admirable that you uh you came back and you're coming back strong you know yeah i follow you on instagram i see a lot of your milestones and i just <laughs> think you're a pretty badass dude overall oh yeah shout out to real nerds and everybody who works on it and everything you're doing man I'll, right on i'll tell you shamley only went away primarily because you know one i went into production on a on a film um uh and the other one was just you know i'll, I'll be frank about it on there i lost my job uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, this show has to come back regardless of any setbacks because it's been a prime factor to keep yeah. me going. And having conversations like this with you uh, are, are motivating factors to keep going because at the end of the day, like, I'm I'm by no means an expert. I didn't get a Ph.D. in film. I dropped out of film school, guys. But, uh, you know, like, th you know, this keeps me going. And just at the very least, like, if I can talk to somebody who understands that genre or that film or that director – um, with a level of at least, you know, their own personal expertise, it helps open the door for films like Hitchcock's or uh, Tippi Hedren's to be explored and dissected. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely, man. I know I'd love to come back on. I know if Cody can make it too, well, he'd like to be Ooh, here too. I, you know what? We'll talk about it off mic, but we'll I, talk think, about I think I got a film <laughs> that you two might have fun with. It's not traditionally a horror movie, but it may be a fun right. Hitchcock talk. All right. Uh, but until next time. Good night. Time to go to the...